Hey, everybody. You are listening to Canary Cry Radio. And Razzle Dazzle, I'm your best buddy, Basil. And my name is Gans. Welcome to episode number 164. 164. There's got to be something there. That's that's 2 times 82. So, that's true. about that. Yeah. Parallel 82s, parallel dimensions, parallel Whoa. troubles. Oh my goodness, it's all coming together. Yeah. Belfast meets Basil on this episode. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I uh I gave a little tease about this a couple weeks ago on the Canary Cry News Talk podcast. Uh so hopefully you caught that, but if you didn't, go check out Canary Cry News Talk. But <clears throat> this was an experience guns. As we move into the future as podcasters, we've we've come so far. And, uh, you know, we've discussed different ways to sort of, I don't know, do our best to create valuable stuff for a long time. And we've tried a lot of different things. But one thing that uh, has always brought a special value to this show uh, is the sort of boots on the ground reports, the experiences, the journeys that we take to explore the nooks and crannies of what's going on in the world or what's going on in the multiverse or what's going on in the human heart. And this is one of those episodes, and I hope everybody enjoys it, of course. Now, in recent days, recent times, we have seen a significant flare-up in the Middle East, which has, you know, tried to... (laughs) which has resulted in millions upon millions of people becoming instant experts overnight about Middle East geopolitics. Uh, Oh, we got a lot of end times Bible prophecy experts poking their head out too. So this is is their time as well. Yeah, it's been very interesting to see. (laughs) Even the mainstream cable media doing reports on the sort of end times connections with the war in the Middle East. It was very bizarre. That was a part of the news cycle a couple of weeks ago. Um, but so there was something that clicked, some small thing that clicked in my head uh, when this you know, conversation became the most important thing. And of course, what clicked in my head was not the mass appeal regurgitation of your classic Israel-Palestine analysis. No, in the deep, dark recesses of the the basil Basil brain brain. uh, was a twinkle. And that twinkle was Northern Northern Ireland. Ireland.
Northern Ireland. For those Americans listening out there, Northern Ireland is different from Ireland. They're no. two different places. No, Northern I Ireland know. is like, uh, you know, the West Coast or the East <laughs> Coast. Yeah. You know, it's just part, it's the North part of the Ireland. The, the Northern Ireland is not just a cardinal direction on the island of Ireland. No, it is indeed its own entity. Uh, so, for the, for, look. Americans, you gotta laugh, okay? You gotta, you gotta read a book once in a while. I'm, I'm only saying this because I had to read a book once, and uh, that's when I learned that Northern Ireland is different from Ireland, and it's a long-storied history of Northern Ireland and Ireland and the separation between the two. And when you start to learn the history, when you start to learn what really happened up there, some dots start. To connect, Gans. Yeah, yeah. Well, when we look around today, a fallen humanity is proven everywhere with the myriad of ways in which we find ourselves in the midst of conflict, whether it be an argument between you and your spouse or authoritarian regimes pulling off genocide over geography, conflict is inevitable. The conflict in Belfast, Northern Ireland, commonly referred to as the Troubles, was a complex and violent period spanning from the late 1960s to 1998, or at least that's what's in the history books. It involved political, cultural, and sectarian strife primarily between unionists. These were mainly Protestant who wanted Northern Ireland to remain part of the United Kingdom and nationalists, also sometimes referred to as Republicans, uh, mainly Catholic who desired a united Ireland. This conflict was marked by intense urban guerrilla warfare, bombings, and civil unrest, including the most symbolic monument of division, a wall. A big, giant wall. Big, beautiful wall. Big, <laughs> beautiful wall. And, like you said earlier, Basil, the, uh, it's your nomadic nature mm. that uh, allows us to have these interesting boots on the ground reports and the show would not be the same without that so of course your best buddy basil missed a week of canary cry news talk recently but it was not because he's just on a vacay right he's he's doing work How vain he's, he's doing work and he was recently in belfast northern ireland he uh, visited the peace wall that separates the protestants and the catholics still to this day and so uh Yes, I'm reintroducing you, Basil. Your best buddy, Basil. It is I. Yes. Here I am. <laughs> Two introductions in one episode. Worth it. Uh, it is true, Gans. I did. I, here's the thing. I already said this to the Canary Cry News Talk audience, but I'll say it here. It was not my intention to miss a week of shows of our three times a week Canary Cry News Talk show. Check it out, CanaryCryNewsTalk.com. But time zones. Time zones, they're a thing, man. And it's already hard enough for you and I to coordinate our schedules. You with the babies, yeah. me without babies, yeah, but animals. big, beautiful birds. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it was difficult. We, we did not do a very good job. But 
I think it's very important. And I think that there is a critical, at the very least, a critical history lesson about Ireland and Northern Ireland that uh, reflects and may give us insight into the Israel-Palestinian conflict. I will disclaim for both of us, Gans, uh-huh. Uh, this, you know, with the Israel situation, there are temptations around every corner to feel or claim like you have some truth that somebody else doesn't have. And if only they would see what you see or knew what you knew, that they would change their minds about the entire conflict. And that's not what we're doing here. But I think through examining the parallel timelines of the Northern Ireland and Irish conflict and the Israel-Palestinian conflict, it's going to provide some insight that is extremely important. And I'm not the first person to notice uh, some interesting parallels between the two stories, but after reading dozens of articles where authors so cleverly uh, compare the Northern Irish and the Palestinian conflicts, it became so clear to me that they, well, are pretty much just as partisan as any of the conflicts around the world. Yeah. And uh, two a one, every single one, I think, came to a conclusion that was A, predictable, and B, kind of ignored some of the intricate details. Uh, of course, each one of them laying Israel uh, at the altar of blame. And we are not here to defend Israel. We are not here to defend Palestine. We're not here to take sides whatsoever. But no matter what you think about it, I think it is essential that uh, you listen to this episode and understand that history, in the words of Joe Biden, oh, when he, (laughs) in the words of Joe Biden, in his first trip, his very first trip to the Middle East Uh as president of the United States. Oh, yeah. During wartime, right? That's right. Well, no, his first one was uh, 2022. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I believe July 15th, 2022. His recent visit was was made him the first American president to visit during war period, I believe. That's right. Okay. That's right. But he took one more trip before that, and in his sort of endless desire to seem, uh, I don't know, deep, profound, wise, (laughs) Uh but also patronly and uncle-like, good old Uncle Joe. This is not about freedom or personal choice. That's right. He, too, made, oh, the oh-so-broadest comparison to... uh, the Irish struggle and the Palestinian struggle gave no details. In fact, it confused the cable media very much. <laughs> but he did conjure up that old saying that uh, history rhymes. He Well, he said exactly, hope in history rhyme. It is my prayer <laughs> that we're reaching one of those moments where hope in history rhymes. Stink minority. Thanks, Uncle Joe. Wait, that doesn't make any sense. 
No, it doesn't. But keep yapping, man. That's our president. I think his message was get vaccinated. <laughs> so the more and more I, I looked into this, uh, the more it became apparent that we had to give it the old canary cry treatment. Mm. I took a trip uh, to Northern Ireland. Interestingly enough, the Palestinian-Israel conflict started, I don't know, a couple days before. I don't remember exactly I think, the dates. If I recall, the day, the 7th when it broke out was the day you were supposed to get on an airplane and go there, but you missed the flight or you canceled the yes, flight? Yes, it was the, uh, well, I went the next day that the, the, uh, the conflict started, and on the next day, I hopped on a plane to go to Northern Ireland. I mean, we're like faster than American police dispatchers over here. We're making it happen. Uh, and yes, there was a global travel warning from the president that if you're American oh, yeah. and you're traveling, you're just going to die. So, <laughs> You're just going to die. Don't even think about we'll it. Don't hunt even, you down to make you pay. Don't pass go. If you get on a plane and you're American, you're going to die. I did not die. I'm very grateful for that. But there was sort of a strange, uneasy feeling uh, in the air, air travel industry that day, of course. But I made it there and uh, just went went to it, went right to it. In this episode, you will hear a walkabout and an analysis of the Peace Wall in Belfast. This was a wall that was erected straight through the city, specifically during the time of the Troubles, to separate warring factions of what they call Catholics and Protestants. There's a Protestant side, there's a Catholic side, and the wall still stands, even though technically on paper uh, the conflict has ended. And not only does the wall still stand, but periodically they build it higher and higher and they close the gates at night between Belfast very much is a place that is has never stopped being in conflict. And this peace wall, it is not, as I was just explaining to you, Gans, it is not in some sort of beautiful, grassy, state-sponsored, uh, you know, monument paid parking that you can lot. visit. Right. There's not a paid parking lot or a public restroom or a, a queue a line to get in so you can go see this monument of conflicts past. No, this wall cuts straight through the city. It is a daily part of life for those in Belfast and stands not only as a reminder of the past, but there is a very deep emotional connection for a lot of people who live there today uh, who consider this wall to still be the thing that is keeping the peace in the city. Yeah. Uh, and you can't miss it. It is, people have their homes built right up to the side of the wall. Uh, as you'll hear, there are roads. People are going about their life with cars driving by. I think at one point I almost got hit by a, a trash truck or something. I mean, it is just a daily part of life, which is something that, uh, you know, Americans with our own interesting relationship to walls, 
I mean, we have uh, the topic of the southern border wall in America is, uh, of course, heated, but also very passion-inducing topic. Uh, But that wall does not run straight through L.A. or straight through New York City. That is Mm -hmm. a wall down in the distant desert, Mm -hmm. oftentimes along a river where nobody can see it. You know, we just see it in pictures. We hear it in politicians' speeches. We we argue about it, even though almost none of us have seen it in real person. But the Peace Wall in Belfast is uh, a daily part of life. And so I want to start, Gans. There's a lot that we have a couple different chapters of this episode, but in order to get the most out of what you're about to hear, folks, I believe that it's, I think it's important uh, to get a little history lesson. And so what I'm going to attempt to do is give you a breakdown of the parallel historical timelines, both of the Irish and Northern Irish conflict and the Palestinian and Israeli conflict. I'm going to try to do my best here. I want to also disclaim that history is so much more complicated uh, than anybody really wants it to be, including me. Uh, There are historical moments and events that I'm uh, just unable to include in this timeline, but I had to pick out what I think are some of the more dramatic moments throughout history that illustrate just the uncanny similarities between these two conflicts. Uh, So I'll get into that history, but first I just want to lay down some ideas here. mentioned here that the conflict in Ireland is sort of colloquially explained in religious terms. They call it the Protestants versus the Catholics. Uh, The Catholics being what somebody could describe as like the native Irish. Of course, the native Irish, they weren't Catholics, they were Celtics and there are Celts and they had their own language. They didn't speak English, you know, the whole thing. But at this period in time, uh, the conflict was between Catholics who were influenced by Rome and Protestants who were uh, influenced, of course, by the UK. The UK being sort of the strongest force for Protestantism in history uh, via their Uh, disconnection from the Vatican and the beginning of the uh, sort of English Protestants. The crown. Church. Yes, the the Anglo, uh, what are they, what was it called? The The Anglo-Saxons. Yeah, the Anglo-Saxons, but they had their own sort of Anglo-Christian official religion that was started by the crown. That was very apparent this year during the inauguration of King Charles. All, all the Anglicans. Cr- Anglicans. The, the, yeah, the overt religious ritual in uh, yeah. Protestantism was what stood out to me watching the footage of, yeah, King Charles doing it with the big sword and everything. And it's all yeah. based on biblical stuff. Very interesting. Yeah. And for the Americans out there, when we say Protestant, we just kind of think like American evangelical. 
Yeah, evangelical. That's right. There needs for Americans to really understand this this key point. Protestant does not mean evangelical. Americans are to evangelicals as uh, the UK is to Anglican Protestant. Uh, just a little detail there for you uh, uh, religious scholars out there. So, you've got the Protestants versus the Catholics in the Northern Ireland-Ireland dispute. And of course, in the Middle East here, it is constantly referred into in religious terms. You've got the Jews and you've got the Muslims. Interestingly enough, they also say uh, the Jews and the Palestinians, when you, if you're talking about in political terms, it's more of a Israeli versus Palestinians. And this is going to be a key distinction in understanding everything here. The way we talk about these conflicts is the way that our worldview is constructed. Because you can call it Judaism versus Islam, or you can call it Protestant versus Catholic. But these conflicts are not inherently religious. Now, of course, uh, we hear the uh, Islamic leadership talking about, you know, the, the, the differences between them and the Jews and why who's this heathen and their, you know, this, this religious flavor that's sprinkled over everything does exist, but it exists because of the political uh, issues here. So you've got... It's used like a weapon. Exactly. Religious names for political uh, ideologies. And, uh, you know, I think it's interesting in the... Re ah, I'll get into that later. <laughs> so, and, you know, and, and I think it's very interesting. Who decided to name these conflicts after their religious factions. I think maybe we'll get some hints along the way, but you've got Protestants versus Catholics, you've got Jews versus Muslims. In the U.S., we have our own religiously identified political lines. Of course, Republican is basically synonymous with Christian, and Democrat is basically synonymous with I don't know, other or something. <laughs> you could say <laughs> atheist, but I think other is a, is a better description. But of course, as we know, if we really think about it, we really uh, look at it with an objective lens. Republican is not synonymous with Christian. There are millions of Republicans who are atheist or other. And there are millions of Democrats who are Christians. And so you can see how it can be a very easy way to identify political factions, but that distinction in religious terms is not inherent. That is not objective uh, distinctions. So not only in America, uh, between Christian and other does not determine your politics. Uh, in some ways, your politics determine how people see your religiosity. In the same way, in the Northern Irish Irish conflict, Catholic and Protestant does not necessarily distinguish between uh, the people as specifically as uh, I was going to say Republican. That might get confusing for Americans, but uh, you know, nationalists and separatists might be the best way to say it. In the same way, Jew versus uh, Muslim does not fully describe what's going on 
in the Middle East. Moving on. In 1916, Gons, where were you in 1916? I was on a river fishing. Oh. (laughs) Trying trying to get some some dinner going for the fam. Fishing on a river. Wow. You're, you know, I always, I do give you some guff for being old, but I didn't know you're that old. Well, you know, Asians look young, so. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, yeah, 1916 and 1917. I want to bring up these uh, years for just a moment. 1917 might sound familiar uh, to some people out there who are educated about the state of Israel. 1917 was the year that Arthur James Belfour wrote the Belfour Declaration hmm. and sent it to Baron Rothschild. Uh, the second Baron Rothschild, and that declaration from the British government to a Jewish politician, also, of course, in the lineage, the great lineage of Rothschild uh, banking empire, and the Belfort Declaration read like this, Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's government the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations, which has been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. Or... I don't know why I rolled that R. Or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. So from the beginning, rights and political status from the very seeds of the modern Zionist movement uh, has been at the core of at least official documentation. It finishes with, I should be grateful if you will bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. Yours sincerely, Arthur James Balfour. Balfour, huh? Balfour? Balfour. And and there's no relationship to Belfast, but, you know, other than the letter B. Yeah, good distinction. (laughs) Now, at the same time, in that same period, World War I was just wrapping up. you got to remember, uh, it's, it's the early 20th century, the early 1900s. The world had just experienced the most radical uh, manifestation of war the Earth had ever seen. Uh, in the Battle of Somme, three million men in one battle three million men in one single battle it truly was an entirely different world back then where fighting wars was not done by uh dudes playing video games in the nevada desert while drones bomb weddings in the middle east it was three million individuals fighting in one battle But what came of this was something called 
The Psyche Picot Agreement. It might be pronounced Psyche Picot, Psyche Picot. I do not know. I did not look it up. So I apologize to anybody who has read it differently, but I'll call it the Psyche Picot Agreement. And the Psyche Picot Agreement was uh, an agreement between France and Britain. And the long and short of it is, this was the official document that gave Britain control of Palestine, modern-day Israel. It all came from a handshake with the French. So, France, you thought you were going to get out of this episode unscathed, and I'm here to tell you, I see your role in all of this, France. You know, France is one of the weird countries in the world that we don't have a whole lot of listeners. And good riddance. I got a lot of symbolism going on in France, too, with um, some of their architecture. I remember doing some breakdowns of some of that oh, in the yeah. past. So, oh, yeah, the yeah. Arc de Triomphe. Uh, now, this is a, an interesting part that a lot of people miss. The common wisdom about the modern nation-state of Israel was that it was established in 1948, and it was established to give uh, Jews a home after World War II because, again, the common knowledge is that nobody would take them. The U.S. didn't want uh, the Jews. Europe didn't want the Jews. Nobody was volunteering to let mass immigration of Jews into their country. And of course, this is described as being anti-Semitic. This was racist. Mm -hmm. this, was, this was because white people hated Jews, so they had to get their own uh, country. But as we know, Britain had committed to, to creating, more or less, the state of Israel in 1917, 30 years before the actual establishment. So it did not take till after 1948 uh, to become a place where Jews were uh, sort of recovering from the diaspora, the Jewish diaspora, where they had been spread all throughout the world, throughout history. It was in 1917 I that was told, I was told Israel was, was built in a day, Basil. Yeah, right. They, they, I've, I've seen uh, people quote some scripture on that too, but uh, yeah, just, just even, ignore the prior thirty years of activity to lead to that point. Yeah, but, you know, yeah, exactly. Even even people who you know look into this for an afternoon, they'll say, okay, that's kind of weird that Britain committed to creating Israel thirty years before it actually happened, and hey, it just took them thirty years. The war helped, blah 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 blah. And while all that's true. Almost immediately after the Belfort Declaration was sent to Baron Rothschild, a migration of Jews from mostly Eastern Europe to what we now call Israel started. There was a migration of 40,000 Jews from Europe that made their way into the Palestinian region. So it was not overnight in 1948 that suddenly... Jews came out of nowhere and appeared uh, in Palestine. There was, uh, e even starting in 1917, it only took about three years or so for 40,000 Jews from Europe to move to Israel. This is, this you know, the idea that it was a response to World War II that caused mass migration to Israel is 
totally fabricated. I mean, there was, of course, a mass migration, but there had been migration. Some might even call it mass migration to where Israel now is for many, many years. In fact, they even have a word for it. The word is, and excuse my pronunciation again, Aliyah, A-L-I-Y-A. It's a Hebrew word, Aliyah. And in Hebrew history, immigration of Jews from the diaspora, so Jews across the world uh, immigrating to the geographical land of Israel, is called Aliyah. And there's been a lot of Aliyah scones. There's, in fact, uh, the first Aliyah happened in the 1800s. The second Aliyah happened in uh, right about 1900. The third Aliyah, depending on which historian is telling the story, started right after 1917, 1918, 1919. Uh, so this was not, e this was not the first my mass migration to Israel. It wasn't even the second mass migration to Israel. It was the third mass migration to Israel. In fact, the migration to Israel after World War II isn't the fourth or the fifth, or I mean, I guess maybe it was the sixth or seventh. It doesn't even have <laughs> okay. a name. There is there is no numbered name mm -hmm. for stopped, the Aliyah. They counting after like four or five. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah, it's just happening now. It's happening consistently. Right, right. And so, anywho, the Jews had been moving into the area for a long, long time, so much so that they even had a word for it, and they had to start putting numbers before the word. And indeed, the Jews and the Arabs were living together in the area for quite some time. Now, Yeah, it seems like they were getting along, too, a little bit. I mean, not, not entirely, yeah, they but... they were getting along. Yeah. Oh, they were at least existing. Existing, yeah. But so 1917, the Belfort Declaration, the uh, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, that is what gave Britain control of Israel. They were now the stewards, the owners, the controllers of Israel. And that started the first separation, at least in the this modern history, the first separation from Jews and Arabs in the region. It was because of Britain winning World War I, taking control of the Ottoman Empire, or at least half of it, splitting with France. And then they started splitting it up. At the same time, and when I say at the same time, Gans, I mean literally, literally <laughs> the exact same time that they are uh, beginning the Israeli project this was the very first hints of the Northern Ireland and Irish actual separation. Now, the history of Ireland uh, and the U and uh, Britain uh, being in conflict, sort of being colonized, uh, sort of being uh, you know controlled by Britain is a long one. It had been happening for quite some time, but at the same time that Britain is causing a split in Israel, they are also officially starting to split Ireland from Northern Ireland. Now, it was a little bit smaller. It was six counties uh, of Ulster, which is in the Northern Irish area, that were given the choice. And what were this? What was this choice? This choice, the 
British occupation of Ireland was long and storied for many, many years, but the British control of the island was starting to get a little shaky. And so you had two groups. You've, of course, had the the nationalists, the Irish people who wanted one, who wanted Ireland to be free. It wasn't even, you know, uh, wasn't even the idea of like, hey, we don't want two Irelands. We want one. It was one Ireland. They just wanted separation from Britain. And then you had Britain, who had a very strong occupation in northern Ireland. There's a whole lot of history to this, but the long and the short of it was that in 1916-1917, England had started letting Ireland rule themselves. They were still occupied, they were still owned by Britain, but they started letting the Irish make their own rules. But the British had a very strong contingent of people in Northern Ireland who were loyal. So there were six counties that decided, we don't want to rule ourselves. We want to rule you. <laughs> we ruled. want you to rule yeah. us, Britain. Yeah. And, and of course, this idea came from all the, I mean, the British people who were now living in Northern Ireland, and they wanted to stay uh, connected to the crown. And so you have the official splitting of, well, I want to say the official splitting. You have the first splitting of Northern Ireland from Ireland, and you have the first splitting uh, happening in the Middle East. It's literally happening at the same time. The king, I think it was a king at that point of England. Maybe it was a queen. I don't know. I think it was a king. Uh, I should have looked that up. That would have been a very easy thing to look up. I didn't do it, though. But the king of England was like sitting at a table with all of his army guys around him and all of the, you know, bankers and all of the uh, industry leaders. King George V during that king time. King George V. Yeah. That's right. He's sitting there with all of his homies at the table trying to figure out what to do with the world. Yeah, we, ju- we, we the- just established the, the central bank in America. We must use the – what accent is this? I don't know what's happening. I don't know, but it sounds <laughs> it sounds good. So to my American ears, uh-huh. that could be a British yeah, accent. Over here in Palestine, over here, Ireland uh- – yeah, they had a lot going on. They had a lot going on. And, uh, you know, he's talking to one guy. He says, okay, yeah, let's uh, let's start moving the Jews into Israel, start, uh, you know, separating the population. And then he's like, okay, whew, got that done. What a good day of work. <laughs> and uh, another guy taps on his shoulder. He's like, what do we do about the Ireland thing? He's like, oh, yeah, split that too. Just <laughs> split everything. Here, here's the template. Just use the one we used over here. Just the same thing, right? Yeah. Seems like a good idea. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. All right, I'm going to take a nap. What if it was a mix-up in paperwork? I mean, Ireland and Israel, pretty close when it comes to spelling yeah. and all that. Yeah, yeah the, what's the up? Pe- <laughs> the pieces of paper got stuck together. And now we move on to the year 1922. Very interesting year here, specifically because Britain... Uh, have you ever heard of a little thing called the League of Nations, Gons? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. These yeah. the group of nations, and no, there, there's no conspiring of nations going on or anything. But uh, you know, they get together and talk about how they are going to control the world. Yeah, 
Yeah, you know, League of Nations, sort of this proto-geopolitical uh, unholy alliance of all the superpowers who want to decide the fate of the rest of the world. Well, uh, Britain obtained a mandate from the League of Nations. So you have kind of this first, uh, not, it was not the first, but an early uh, version of you know, League of Nations, a, a geopolitical alliance of all the world's elites uh, actually giving a mandate to another country. I mean, recently we've seen this kind of happen in different ways. World Health, uh, uh, World Health, what is it called? Organization. organization. <laughs> oh, whoa. World Health Organization. You've got the United WEF, Nations. the yeah. World Economic Forum. You've got these, you know, sort of big elite groups giving mandates to countries. Well, in 1922, Brit uh, Britain obtained a mandate from the League of Nations uh, to administer the territory of the Ottomans. That's Israel and Palestine. During the mandate, the area saw successive waves of Jewish immigration and the rise of nationalist movements in both Jewish and Arab communities. So you start having some very serious conflicts uh, between the, you know, the the uh, two groups in this case. You know, you're talking in a political sense, you're talking basically Western Jews and Middle Eastern Arabs trying to get together, and things got a little tense. Things get a little tense there. Uh, and so you have further sort of establishing official boundaries of, you know, Jewish areas and Arab communities, the borders start getting drawn, this sort of thing. And at the same time, uh, in Northern Ireland, in 1922, this was the official, on paper, separation. The maps were drawn, the borders were laid for a separation of Northern Ireland and Ireland. And Ireland being a free state, the free state of Ireland with its own government, its own rule. It's uh, hmm. you know not burdened by the control of Great Britain. And you've got Northern Ireland, who is now officially separated from Ireland, and Northern Ireland is under British rule. So this is like a two-state solution yeah, conclusion. Squared. Yeah. It's a two-state solution squared. squared. You've got a two-state solution on the island of Ireland. You've got a two-state solution starting to crop up in the Middle East. Indeed, that's kind of where uh, when the actual words two-state solution start cropping up. Um, so the idea of a two-state solution has been there uh, since very, very early, and it happened almost perfectly in parallel with uh, with the Irish issue, as maybe a, a lord might have said it. Uh, and, you know, there's some interesting connections, of course, with the Rothschilds in the Middle East. There are some interesting connections with the Rothschilds in Ireland, particularly during the, uh, the potato famine. Um, and so you've got these almost parallel dimensions happening from across the world, but being perpetrated by the exact same force. You've got Britain, but by extension, 
you've got the League of Nations. It's not just the King of England who's making these decisions. There is influence from what at that time would have been called the one world government of the League of Nations, having their hand in both of these uh, in in both of these situations, and the League and of so, Nations being something that came together post World War One, similar to how many of the groups came together, international institutions came together after World War Two. So it seems to be a, a yeah. pattern here. Yep, and it's you know it's it's very interesting because you've got the West, you've got Britain, uh, who, as you know, we have all learned, benefits from conflict from the Israel-Palestinian conflict, a political conflict uh, that ultimately serves to destabilize the region region for the economic benefit of the West, but even from the very beginning, it was the spoils of war of Britain after the First World War. And you've also got Britain benefiting from the the conflict in Ireland and Northern Ireland, keeping, keeping these split up places divided in the language of religion. And the religious language is very important. And you can, it's, it's, it's obviously intentional and a very clever ruse by the forces uh, in, the, in, in Britain because it works. It simply works. If you have political differences in a region, you make it religious. And I'm not saying that these, you know, members of these religions don't want to hurt each other. That's that's certainly true, but the uh, the very core of these conflicts did not start with a religious conflict. It starts with a political conflict. The religious uh, sort of overlay and language uh, is very intentionally used to make the stakes existential. Right. Because your average potato farmer in Ireland isn't really so concerned about you know some high level politics going on it doesn't necessarily feel like an existential threat to a potato farmer and the same thing in the middle east you know the who draws your borders and who you know gets your taxes is not necessarily the most important thing in your life but if you turn it into if you put religious language on it, you've now made the stakes of your political conflict into, uh, you've turned them into eternal stakes. You know, they are existential stakes where you can't let the other political guy get his way because then everybody's going to hell in a handbasket, literally. We're seeing that exact language being used right now by in the in the conflict with Israel and Palestine people on social media and elsewhere even leadership saying that this is a good this is a matter of good and evil it is a moral yeah. situation therefore eternal consequences cosmic level you know consequences oh yeah it's it's it's, it's the way to into a person's heart yeah even with the even you know even if the american politicians aren't saying you know that this is whatever christian versus 
you know, it's not Yahweh versus Allah or whatever. Right. They, they are can't using go there. religious too, language too mm-hmm. to influence the public for their own political purposes. Uh, and as we know, political purposes turn into economic purposes, and somebody's always getting rich by keeping people sort of religiously fired up for the cause. Just to distinguish one more time, the Israel-Palestinian conflict, the Jews are sort of representative of the West. You know, we, yeah. we kind of think of Israel as, as the Middle East and their Middle Easterners, but really... Israel is a Western project. It was Western Jews who moved in. It was Western nations that that drew the borders. It was Western. It was a, it was sort of the trophy uh, of the West after not just World War II, but also World War One. Yeah. Uh, and so you have the Western political interests clashing with the Middle Eastern political interests. The Arabs. I mean, the Arabs who have very sort of robust political systems uh, throughout the Middle East. Theocratic, to be specific, yeah. Yeah. Right. In the same way, you had the same thing in Northern Ireland. The Catholics, you know, they were influenced by Rome. They Mm. weren't necessarily big fans of Protestantism or England. You had Protestants, of course, that were being influenced and were led by the British Anglican Protestants. Uh, And so this helped maintain influence. It helped keep the divisions alive that gave the public the morale and the will and the spirit to actually play out these political purposes, literally as pawns. And, And of course, it's not just, you know, in the media right now, these are sort of put in different ways. They're saying it's you know that the the framing is that like Palestinians are the locals. You know, it's the locals versus the colonizers, the natives versus the colonizers. This is a sort of a very extremely recent phenomenon that these are. The, this is the new language being put on it. Yeah. Um, but as we saw in Ireland, pretty much everybody were locals for the most part. It was just all Irish people with different influences. In Palestine, uh, in in early 19th century Palestine, they were all locals. The Jews were local and the Palestinians were local. They were living together for a long time. The Jews had been mass immigrating into the area for like a hundred years or something. Yeah, Everybody got, was local. paperwork. Yeah, it's all about the paperwork and who, who gets to be at the top of the food, food chain when it comes to some of this. But I, I do have a question for you because sure. we, uh, I know you're, you have your list of things and we're going through everything. In the context of the UK or I guess uh, the crown or the British crown or however there, there are specific ways, I guess Americans don't get it right when it comes to the labeling of that. From the, yeah, uh, there's a lot of, of yeah, very subtle differences, and sure. you'll hear in, in the interview, I have a hard time with them myself. For our purposes, let's just call it the Rothschild regime. They seem to be the common thread here between the Irish situation and the Israel situation. In Western the context- economic banking system being right. sort of the driver. Right, right. So in the if we are to compare sides here, because in the... Ireland conflict, a Northern Ireland conflict, 
the uh, the Unionists or the Protestants, they were the ones that wanted Northern Ireland to be part of the UK, correct? Correct. So they would be sort of your Jews that live in Israel today. They are part of – they want to stay yeah, the as Western part of the – influence. Right. Western influence in the region, right? And then your nationalists, which is confusing because sometimes they're called Republicans, right? I think, yeah, uh, it gets confusing. It's very for confusing Americans. for us. Yeah, they are mainly Catholic, and they wanted a united Ireland, one Ireland, would, yeah. one one Ireland, which is interesting because in the Israel context, they want a one Israel, right? They don't necessarily. Oh, yeah. So it's confusing in that sense, but it's more so if we are to do a one to one. Comparison. They're more like the Palestinians, or in, in the modern context, where they they live there and they. I don't know. It's it's not exact. It's not an exact one to one. Yeah, it's a, you can't. And which this is, the is what. Yeah, exactly. Well, and this is the problem when you read mostly mainstream articles about this. Is they're all very simplistic because, uh, because they want to identify. The good guy the and good the bad guy, the guy. bad guy. Right. They right. want to identify one side versus the other side without acknowledging that the real cause of the conflict is Western economic interests. It's not a religious battle. It's yeah. not. It's. It is only a political battle in the sense that you know politics is how the rich guys get even richer. So yeah. if you try to split it into sort of this one side versus the other, it will be split forever. You right. will never get consensus. Yeah. But when you take a step back and you realize that it's not Israel versus Palestine and it's Northern Ireland versus Ireland, it's Great Britain. It is Western <laughs> elite. Economic. The elite. Yeah, the elite of. Uh, well, you can say UK. I mean, that's what they were. But I'm. It's more so an elite class. Well, and uh, even yeah, exactly the elite class. Because even above necessarily nationalist interests for of the UK, Britain. Yeah. you've got the League of Nations. Right. It is literally not Israel versus Palestine or Northern Ireland versus Ireland. It's the League of Nations, the elite ruling class of the whole world, is doing the splitting yeah. on purpose between these these two things. And of course, for for economic interests are are always at the bottom of it. It's so, almost uh, if you look at team sports, because you know mm -hmm. I, I follow a little bit of sports ball. I know you don't, Basil, but there's a lot of analogies that could be drawn here because you have your owners. Your owners have their own kind of group They're, they are their own level of elite and then right. you have the commissioner who is supposed to be the spokesperson for the owners uh who speaks to the players and everything they kind of you know make deals between the owners and the players and then yeah. the players you know they all fight for whatever contracts they can get but uh and they're battling each other but also when it comes to the teams you know, you got team names and stuff. The the ownership right. committee has to agree to the names, but that's for the common people to, you know, really get rah-rah over you right, know, whether you're right. the Dolphins or the Eagles or whatever you are. You know, it doesn't matter to the owners. It's, yeah. It just gets whoever, them going. <laughs> I mean, it's almost a perfect metaphor. Right. Because, you know, the 49ers and the Steelers are not native. <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> the separate players aren't 
uh, actual 49ers digging for gold. They're not lineage. Exactly. From, <laughs> from the They're gold. not lineages. <laughs> there's, there's nothing inherently that separates the teams. The teams are separated by the owners. The owners are the ones that even create the idea of teams. They schedule the, the conflicts, the games. Yeah. Right. And even higher above that, you know, you've got the, 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 the long and short of it is no matter who wins and loses the football game, the league wins. Yep. To Ching. Yep. The players may get, get good contracts or lose their contracts. Some get injured. Yeah. Losing is bad and winning is good. And there's economic things tied to that. But in the end, it literally does not matter as long as there is conflict, as long as the teams are fighting each other, the league always wins. Yeah. They couldn't care less who wins and loses the games. It literally has no bearing on their goals. Yeah, they might have uh, preferences. You know, that, sure. I, I think there are, uh, if you look it's, at the it's Israel It's fun to thing, have preferences. Yeah, there, there are certain uh, geographical Project, pride. yeah, pride, but also projects that could be part of the situation sure. here. Um, yeah, it's all part of it. Yeah, it's all part of yeah, it. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. if the Steelers have a good uh, have a good year, and that gets you know some huge influx. Well, for instance, you've got the Taylor Swift. Uh, oh yeah, the Kelsey thing. Who's that? What team is that? Is that the Chiefs, uh, Chiefs, something. I don't know. I don't follow football. Yeah. I don't know why the we Chiefs, should go back to football. Yeah, yeah. you know. The Chiefs are, they had some crazy number of merch sales because of this Taylor Swift thing. So, yeah, somebody in the league, maybe even the owner of the team, had uh -huh. an interest uh -huh. of the <laughs> highly uh, specific granular activity within the team because it would bring in a lot of money. Yeah. And you know that all the other team owners are looking for a pop star that they can get <laughs> together up. with their QB or something. Of course. Of course. Yeah. This is the best marketing tool uh, you can have is a celebrity relationship yeah. type of tabloid type of thing. So, yeah. So yeah, it may it's, not it's be the that the elites have no investment in who wins, but the long and short of it is no matter who wins and loses, those at the top win. They win every time. It is rigged and, to that And effect. in fact, much like the football team, the only way that the elites lose is if the teams don't play each other. Yeah. If the yeah. teams don't play, then the elites don't profit. So this is, uh, this is just a fun little way to put into context what's going on around the world and even bigger – like what the big play is, what the meta uh, sort of analysis of team versus team and conflict versus peace and everything. This is all good stuff to keep in mind as we go through the rest of this episode. And just to put a bow on the whole sports analogy thing, you just mentioned how one of the ways the owners don't win is if the players don't play. And interestingly enough, in, in sports – if the players don't play, usually it's because there's some kind of contract negotiation that doesn't work right. And so the players as a union all say, we're not playing, we're boycotting. And then they come to the table, they have to work out a deal. If we're looking at that analogously with all the, the situation happening with war in general, it really goes back to the Matthew 5 
you know, you've heard an eye for an eye, but if you see evil or you have evil done to you or slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other, turn the other cheek, you know, stop the cycle of violence, basically, which is the message there. It would be interesting if everybody was like, ah, we're going to stop fighting because then the elite would be somewhat forced to come to the table with actual negotiations, perhaps, and not egging on more fighting, more killing. But that is an extremely difficult yeah. thing to do. In a magical world where Israel and Palestine could come together and agree to not fight one another <laughs> and could wake up to the fact that there are powers above them that are benefiting uh, from their eternal violence. And, uh, you know, I mean, and that's the sort of dream of those who see what's going on around the world if there were a world that weren't so fallen and we could all get on the same page and realize uh you know and it would only take it doesn't mean Bibi Netanyahu or Hamas needs to uh you know make peace but if individuals individual soldiers if millions and millions suddenly had an awakening and they all decided not to fight you, you know they would have to have uh bb and the leader of hamas have a fist fight or something if they wanted to say yeah, in the metaverse let's do it yeah yeah that's uh that would technically be the way that it worked uh unfortunately i think that until we get to heaven uh, the chances of that kind of understanding <laughs> what if that's the big appeal is very slim what if that's the big reveal you know we're in heaven and, and jesus is like all right this is how we settle things in heaven put on your vr goggles folks robo battle going into the metaverse to settle these disputes <laughs> oh goodness gracious i would be a little skeptical i would be <laughs> start looking around i'm going to take you on a walk down uh, the Peace Wall in Belfast, Ireland, that will give you some very interesting insight, uh, both into the Is Israel-Palestinian conflict and the Northern Ireland-Irish conflict. Uh, and, you know, uh, this is not, these parallels are not lost on the Irish. And uh, you'll learn that when I talk to Johnny. He's an Irish artist, and he was a peace worker during the Troubles uh, when the, the, the peace was being made around the turn of the century. He was uh, part of a group that uh, did a lot of work culturally and politically to bring about peace in Ireland and Northern Ireland. Uh, so I thought he was... And not only that, he's an extremely talented artist. And so, uh, you know, he's got he's got that Irish accent, folks. So really dial in. You're going to need to <laughs> to listen up good to make yeah, sure you catch I, everything. I think uh, the audio equipment, something happens to the audio yeah. gear in Ireland. I, I, maybe yeah. it was your flight. Maybe it's just the air, the Irish air up there. It's tense. Right. Unfortunately, uh, the episode from here on out will not be absolute studio quality. However, Gans and I have – Gans has done his very best, a valiant effort to make, uh, to make the content listenable. I think he did a great job. But we both have actually taken steps 
to improve this kind of content in the future. We've invested in some better gear and uh, laid out some strategies that will make these types of things better in the future. So thank you for your patience and thank you for your grace. And uh, first, I'm going to take you uh, down a walk of the Peace Wall. Then I'm going to be talking with Johnny, a very cool friend of mine who lives over there and has done a lot of very relevant work to this conversation. And I hope you guys enjoy. Close your eyes. Step into your best buddy Basil's teleportation device and let me whisk you away to the land of Ireland. Hey everybody, your best buddy Basil here, and I've got boots on the ground. Boots on the ground in Belfast, Ireland here. Uh, I teased, I teased a couple shows ago uh, the very interesting parallel history between the Troubles in Northern Ireland, specifically, particularly in Belfast, but other surrounding cities, and the parallels to what's going on in the Israel-Palestine conflict. And so, I am taking a walk down the Belfast streets to go visit the Peace Wall. Uh, The Peace Wall was erected uh, to create some sort of barrier between the Protestant and the Catholic populations of uh, Belfast. Interesting thing here. Uh, Oh, and the wall has been, since the Good Friday Agreement, uh, it's interesting that the wall has not come down. The wall is up, and there's a lot of interesting factors about that. As I'm walking here, I'm walking by (laughs) what looks to be a church, some sort of non-denominational church, uh, with the title City Life Center. Except for in the big sign here, the F is missing in life. So it's the City Lie Center. Uh, I wonder if that's an act of vandalism or an act of God. Who knows? Okay, I'm coming up on the wall here. And immediately what I run into on the corner is... uh, How do you describe that? It's a uh, gigantic sort of billboard-sized... Uh, print, printouts, or banner, or something. Um, on one side of it, it has the British flag, uh, memorializing someone named Lieutenant Colonel John Henry Patterson. And on the right side, it's got the Israeli flag with "We salute you." There's some Hebrew letters written across the top, and in the English, it says, "The future is yours." If you have a oh, big truck driving in front of me. The future is yours if you have the will, if you have the faith. Now, this will be an interesting uh, thing to compare as we walk along the peace wall here because there's just sort of an innumerable uh, amount of different messages. The next section of the wall is for, uh, what is this? The Ulster Division, 1916. Interestingly enough, 1916 is the uh, year that, well, as you'll learn in the interview to come, this is a very important year for Northern Ireland. The next piece of the wall here uh, has 
picture of some... It kind of looks like a Stalin figure, but it's got a British flag. I have no idea. Kitchener's own. Are you one of Kitchener's own? Ah, oh, we've got a sort of, I don't know, some sort of celebration of uh, British colonialism in India, Australia, and South Africa, Canada, New Zealand, Newfoundland. Hmm. And it just keeps going, folks. It just keeps going. You've got... Uh, I'm coming towards the center area of the wall. And the center area of the wall is very interesting. When I say center, I mean uh, the gate. The gate that separates the Protestant from the Catholic parts of Belfast. Now, it's sort of, sort of a no-man's land. Uh, somebody showing me around said that there's uh, this no-man's land in between the two walls. And uh, it's maybe about a hmm, hundred feet, a hundred feet with spiky, big spiky gates on either side. Uh, and don't worry, though, the gates have been painted by what looks to be children. You've got some sort of kindergarten uh, style painting of the gates with green meadows and a blue river and some very happy shapes that I think are people uh, standing on the bridge. And then the wall continues on the other side in the in no man's land right here between the two sides. Two very interesting things. Uh, you've got the gigantic sign for New Life City Church being a God influence. Is there a tagline there? And across from that, we've got a celebration of International Day of Peace, 21st of September. Uh, they've put together sort of a mural that looks like the Imagine, uh, I don't know, what is it, the, the album cover or something? You know, the Beatles thing. Imagine. Uh, in understanding, all walls shall fall down. That's a quote from Khalil Gibran. Uh, there's another one here. A further shore is reachable from here, from Seamus Heaney. Oh, Seamus Heaney, very famous Irish poet. Here in the No Man's Land, there's also been erected a cross, a big... Oh, they're calling it the Cross of Crosses. A big sort of a rustic looking cross and inside that cross are uh, dozens of little mini crosses crosses within crosses there's a plaque here it says the cross of crosses marking 45 years of conflict in northern ireland they have the dates set to 1969 through 2014 the plaque continues let this be the year the conflict ends sponsored by George McElroy, Ignite 2014. Okay, so we've got sort of a Christian um, display here. In front of this cross is a little sandbox where others have stuck uh, wooden crosses and what looks to be sort of like fake candles. Um, but that's just the beginning, folks. You know, I'm here. I, I, I uh, hinted a couple episodes ago and the interesting parallels, the connections between 
Well, the Israeli-Gaza conflict going on right now in the long history of Northern Ireland, which was uh, sort of annexed by the British. Um, and we will be talking more about that specific history later on. I have now made it through, through the no-man's land and have stepped foot onto the Catholic side of Belfast. We've got a gigantic mural with um, uh, that is here honoring Frederick Douglass. Uh, you've got Martin Luther King. You've got uh, Obama. You've got all, you know, oh, Bob Marley's here. Gotta get the Bob Marley in the peace mural. All sorts of famous figures uh, working for peace as <laughs> there is then a panel filled with advertisements it uh, looks like a Facebook page it says Facebook up at the top 21 years working with youth the Bites Project the Bites Project with an apple with a, uh, a bite taken out of it of course there's things on here. Conflict resolution. Facebook.com. Why I am Bites Project. I'll have to check that out. Now we're getting into some more abstract things here. The next uh, mural says climate change affects everyone, but not equally. Oh, here you go. You've got uh, sort of a dark city landscape. Woo, some people are driving quite fast here. Uh, dark city landscape in the background with smoke billowing up from some sort of industrial area. And uh, that smoke is turning into skulls. In the center, we've got uh, two hands, a pair of hands, holding the world, holding the globe. Uh, but instead of blue water, it is white. And instead of green land masses, you've got scary screaming figures who are terrified of something. Uh, protruding from the center of this globe are two clock hands. One, oh, and they are sort of positioned like a scale, uh, pointing in opposite directions. On one side of the scale is the developing world, and on the other side of the scale is the developed world. Uh, oh, and a nice little touch here at the bottom of it. You've got the Statue of Liberty that is... Uh, tipping over and underwater. Now, here's where we come to the first mention of what I've been interested in. Now we have a mural. And this mural is of two jail windows. Two windows with bars on them uh, opposite each other reaching through the bars in the jail windows are two or is a, two sets of hands. One pair of hands is clothed uh, in a sleeve of the Irish colors, the Irish flag. Uh, the other hand is clothed, uh, sleeved in the colors of the Palestinian flag. And it says here, Solidarity POWs, Prisoners of War. And there's also some, uh, what looks to be Arabic writing above it. Uh, so the impression here is that, well, right there, Solidarity for the Prisoners of War uh, for both 
I, uh, Irish, maybe, uh, I guess, Northern Irish, uh, and Palestinians, a, a, a sort of direct connection. And those hands are holding each other's hands from, uh, from each of their jail windows. And this is what I'm talking about, folks. Uh, a very interesting connection. There is not just a comparison being made by this artist, but specifically solidarity between the two. Now you'll hear more about the ideas of uh, prisoners of war in these, well, at least on the Irish side of this comparison. Um, but the idea being that the, f the conflict for uh, conflict for freedom from Britain by the Irish is uh, directly compared to the Palestinian conflict for freedom uh, from the Israeli situation. And it keeps going. Uh, the next mural here is Army of the People. It says Battle of the Falls. Falls Curfew 1917. And this is filled with uh, history and uh, pictures, lots of photos of the Battle of the Falls. You know what? I'm going to go over there. I'm going to read it because this sounds interesting. Crossing the street. Oh, here we go. It says here. Okay, let's learn some history together, folks. This says Falls Curfew. Now, Falls for those, well, I didn't mention it. The road that we are on is called Falls. So, says the Falls Curfew, also called the Battle of the Falls, was a British Army operation during the 3rd to the 5th of July, 1970. Oh, 4th of July, 1970. Operations began as a search for weapons. Attacks from youths with bottles and petrol bombs quickly descended into fierce gun battles between British soldiers and the Irish Republican Army trying to defend the area. As a quick review, the Irish Republican Army is the, the Irish uh, people who were fighting for freedom from Great Britain. Yeah. So they were trying to defend this neighborhood from the British soldiers. Uh, it goes on. An imposed curfew lasting 36 hours quickly followed as thousands of British troops moved in carrying out a house-to-house -house search for weapons causing much destruction to homes. Large amounts of CS gas uh, were used and civilians suffered severe abuse from soldiers. On 5th of July, the curfew was brought to an end as thousands of women and children from Andersontown marched into the area with food for besieged locals. The British Army admitted afterwards that some of its soldiers had been involved in looting. The Falls curfew was a turning point in the Troubles. It is seen as having turned many Catholics slash nationalists against the British Army and having boosted support for the IRA. Okay, so, uh, you know, we've got some very official-looking historical documents up here telling the stories, some of the specific stories, about what has caused so much uh, trouble here in the Troubles. Uh, the next panel is, is this our city? Is a quote. Hashtag build homes now. Quote, we have a vision of a better Belfast. When you're in a hostel for so long, it starts to feel like a jail. 
is just so irritating and frustrating. It looks like, oh, we've got some Arab writing on the left, uh, some, some English on the right. Uh, I guess this is advocating to build more houses for the Catholic side of Belfast. And uh, you will hear later on in the talk I had with Johnny McEwen exactly what that's referring to. The next one is very fun. A gigantic mural, a big red mural that says the Workers' Party Socialist Secular Anti-Sectarian for Workers' Unity and Socialism Liberté, Egalité Fraternité So we've got very specifically sort of an advertisement for the Socialist Party in the area and next up, we've got um, a mural that is, oh, what is this? Uh, uh, I guess commemorating o O'Callan, some, some fella named O'Callan. And again, it says here in English, peace is more difficult than war. We were not scared as we resisted. We will not be scared when we make peace. This is a quote by Abdullah O'Callan, PKK Kurdistan Worker Party, a revolutionary, a prisoner in solitary confinement since February of 1999. And this harkens to an interesting uh, part of the, the situation for Northern Ireland is this peace wall really is reaching out, making reference to... Um, to conflicts all around the world. They are connecting to conflicts that I've really never heard of, and maybe that's on purpose. Maybe the, these are conflicts that maybe the powers that be don't want to be made known. Uh, and so these murals are put up on the peace wall in order to not only draw attention to conflicts around the world, but also to uh, connect the Northern Irish conflict and the plight of its people uh, to broader international uh, stories, things like that. And that was something that I had no idea about. We've heard about the Troubles once in a while. They'll, I don't know, make it on uh, a reference to the Troubles or make it on a TV show or something. But this peace wall here in Belfast truly is a gigantic sort of memorial or something uh, to almost the idea of conflict. Now we've got a poster, a gigantic poster for the Irish Republican Prisoners Committee. Uh, shows some hands holding some jail bars here. And they really are just act, uh, sort of advertisements for joining different uh, organizations that may be paramilitary organizations or bureaucratic organizations or activist organizations. Uh, another big one here is, man, this is a fist raised in solidarity. Uh, the fist is colored with the colors of the Irish flag. The fist is holding within its grip a bunch of barbed wire that is curling around. It looks very painful. There's some blood dripping out. On either side of the fist are uh, two AK-47s. Uh, sort of computer generated. They look like uh, maybe they took the 
assets from Call of Duty or something. But uh, so it's a very intense, very militaristic image. And it says Irish Republican National Congress join the IRNC Belfast. So active sort of active invitation to get involved in the conflict that some very much consider to still be raging. And that's kind of the idea. As you continue down the wall, it is reference, mural on mural on mural on reference, and then advertisement uh, for these conflicts. Sometimes, it, it, sometimes it's not clear if it's denouncing the conflicts or celebrating the conflicts. It's, it's really not, there's nothing like it in the United States. This one is very interesting. We've got some names, Danny Lochran, Matt McLaren, Paul McCann, Martin McElkerney, and Gino Gallagher. It says, fallen comrades of the Irish National Liberation Army. You've got, on either side, sort of blurry, sort of pixelated, pictures of men in green fatigues, covering their faces with green cloth, wearing uh, berets, berets, I don't know, berets and sunglasses, and kneeling in front of red stars. You've got uh, a man holding a gun. You've got pictures of these individuals, again, overlaid over red stars. And then you've also got a red star, in f which in front of it is a fist holding an AK-47. So the sort of militaristic imagery is just keeps on going. Oh, and good. I'm running into a mural here with uh, what I'm assuming is a bunch of sort of Andy Warhol-esque depictions. I'd say, I'm going to guess, uh, of... I don't know, general peaceful characters or peace activists or something. Jesus is definitely on there. We got Jesus. So I'm kind of having to base the rest on that. That's Jesus, and I have no idea who any of these other people are. Uh, there's, you know, these may actually be individuals who are directly related uh, to the conflict. Let's see here. On the text on the bottom of this gigantic picture of someone with a beard says it is not those who can inflict the most but those who can endure the most who will conquer and endure they do ah here's somebody this is a pretty easy one you've got a let's see south african flag and an irish flag waving sort of into each other and nelson mandela you know the guy from the mandela effect uh, raising a fist here in solidarity and peace. Here's a quote. In my country, we go to prison. Uh, we go to prison first and then become president. Madiba Nelson Mandela, freedom lover, friend of Ireland. Ah, I did not know that. I'm glad that they were friends. Okay, now here's a big one that's very uh, on target here. Giant poster board, uh, permanent poster board that says RNU stands with Palestine. The RNU is Republican Network for Unity. This is uh, a sort of Irish freedom organization. It says Viva Palestine. Uh, in the middle here, we've got uh, sort of a spooky image of 
uh, I don't know, a person's face that is sort of colored with the Palestinian colors with a hand over their mouth. And you guessed it, the hand has the Israeli flag. And this just goes on like forever. Remember, this wall continues down the entire stretch of Belfast. And the uh, interesting thing about you'd think with walls in this sort of situation, um, we've seen these things before. And, you know, there's always this story about after a conflict, the wall is taken down and peace and things like that. But this wall still stands and is being used uh, not just to place murals. Murals are not the only thing uh, going on with this wall. Up at the top of the wall, whoop, almost got hit by a bus, that's fun. The top of the wall is still adorned with spiky uh, deterrents from climbing it. Let's see here. This is CR gas and the burning of Long Kesh. All right, uh, something else going on here. Operation Pagoda. The British government authorized and sanctioned the use of a chemical weapon against Irish Republican prisoners. Members of the 22nd SAS carried out the attack from a helicopter. There sure is a lot of opportunities to start Googling and learning more about what's going on. Um, now, in the area that I currently I'm standing. The wall is about, uh, I'm going to guess, maybe 15 feet high, including the spikes on the top. But there are parts of the wall that cross the, the city that start with the original brick wall rising up about 15 feet. And then on top of that, there's another 15 feet of concrete, uh, which was obviously added later. And then on top of that, there's another 15 feet of sort of metal, uh, similar to the uh, southern border wall in the United States. The thing is absolutely gigantic. I don't, I've never seen a wall, a freestanding wall uh, that stands so tall. Here we've got a mural dedicated to the Spring Hill West Rock Massacre in Belfast on Sunday the 9th of July, 1972. Still no inquest, still no justice. Um, and it goes and it goes and it goes, folks. Now, this is what's considered to be the international part of the wall, which is... Again, standing in solidarity or condemning or celebrating different conflicts around the world. But it also has a lot of the uh, references to the Irish struggle. Uh, this is something that maybe if you were of age in the 90s, you probably were seeing going on on the news. Uh, but the fact that it is not sort of the details are not more widely known honestly continues to surprise me the more that I learn um, oh we've got a mural here a Palestinian flag oppression breeds resistance you've got a man this is a very interesting one somebody really got creative you've got a man who is missing his legs and he is in a wheelchair a man with his legs below the knee have been amputated. He's in a wheelchair. He looks very determined. He's swinging above his head what we would 
know as a, a sling, like the kind David used to slay Goliath, but loaded into the sling, it's not a stone, not a pebble from the river, but it looks like a quart of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I don't know if that was added later or if there's some sort of significance of that. I know that uh, Ben and Jerry's is part of the BD, what is it called? BDI, uh, Boycott, Divest, and something else. Uh, a campaign American progressives and liter liberals like to, uh, I don't know, promote where you boycott Israeli companies. And Ben and Jerry's did join the boycott of Israel, I believe, last year. So maybe that's some sort of nod to that. Who knows? They took his land, his legs, and finally his life. We've got another one here. Palestine, 1917 through today. They have the various maps of the changes of the Palestinian... Uh, uh, the territories it says it's time for the Irish government show some humanity and act for the Palestinian people and there's a list here one officially recognize the state of Palestine Two, impose economic sanctions on Israel okay yeah there's the Ben and Jerry's reference three end all and something is oh end all diplomatic ties to apartheid state boycott Israel and apartheid state there it is right there okay so some more direct uh, oh this is this comes from the Shea scholarship I'm not exactly sure what that is uh, but a red star follows it uh, there's a little sign in the bottom here. It says, immediate expulsion of all Israeli diplomats from Ireland. A call to expel Israeli diplomats from the country of Ireland. And it goes and it goes and it goes. Uh, so, very interesting, folks. Um, some boots on the ground here in Northern Ireland. A bit of a surprise trip. One thing that really is included in this. There are buildings and homes and things that are right up against the wall, living just feet away from the wall. And um, they look like, well, right now I'm walking by what looks to be like a preschool. Very stout, short, green building. It's very long. And uh, there's a giant blue gate in front of it, behind that gate is another black gate and behind that over each and every one of the windows which are adorned with ch ch child's uh, artwork are cages and these cages are much more robust than sort of the normal security bars you would see on a particular building uh, and you see this over on the catholic side of the wall as well where buildings that are built right up homes homes that are built right up against the wall they'll be you know 10 feet away from the wall uh, it, these homes will have built a cage over the back of the house to protect the home and anybody standing in the backyard from things that are thrown over the wall uh, I was told stories about as recently as the, I believe, late 90s, there were times when 
the Protestant side were throwing things over the wall, the gigantic wall. Somehow they're getting things thrown over. And it could be bricks, it could be bottles, it could be Molotov cocktails, and in one case was a grenade. And uh, so these cages that are built on the houses are, you know, are built for the purpose of protecting homes and children from bricks and bottles and grenades. The the uh, construction of this area is very interesting. There are almost no individual houses. Now, right now, yeah, I guess I am on the Catholic side right now. Uh, one, oh, there's a Palestinian flag flying from one of the homes of a resident on the Catholic side. Uh, very interesting. And we talk about this a little bit more later that... Uh, the sort of religious categorizations of the Northern Irish, uh, Northern Irish uh, conflict uh, are almost uh, inconsequential. It's, it's not disagreements on theology. It's not disagreements on, uh, you know, epistemology or ecclesiology. It is simply a political a distinction between Catholics and Protestants, and it is the Catholic side that is in such support of the Palestinians. Now, I'm going to get quiet for just a second. This was something that I was warned about. There are lots of um, tours and tour guides, unofficial and official, that come by these pieces of the wall. Now, you might be tempted to think that because of the Good Friday Agreements, the official peace found uh, between the two sides, uh, I believe in 1999, I might need to be corrected on that, Woo! that things might have settled down. But the reality is, after talking to many Northern Irish people, is that the conflict still boils underneath the surface and uh, tourists tourists come to participate in what's called troubles tourism which has a sort of mixed reaction and i was told hold on a second acting totally natural <laughs> crossing the street um, I'm going to cross the street here while I have the chance I was told that you kind of got to be careful when you are speaking acting totally natural especially when you come around uh, people giving tours the Catholic and the Protestant sides, they obviously have their own version of the story. Uh, and I was told to be very careful about talking specifics when you are at the wall because it is not unheard of that if somebody does not like the way you are speaking about the conflict, that they will certainly let you know. And, uh, that can include various means of silencing you. So I'm going to try not to get my 
myself in some trouble here. There's one more gigantic billboard type mural here. Uh, it says, for, for what died the sons of Rosanne, Royson, unbowed, unbroken. On one side, we've got someone named Oglach Charlie Hughes, Leonel, oh, a lot of stuff I don't know how to say, and Leela Khaled. Again, we've got the Irish flag on the Oglach Charlie Hughes side, a black and white photo of a young man holding a rifle. Uh, although he's... He's wearing a black tie and a suit, which is respectable. Leela Khaled looks like a young uh, Middle Eastern woman. She is wearing some classic Middle Eastern head coverings, and she is holding an AK-47. And in big letters across it says, Our struggle continues. So, one more. One more direct connection between the Northern Irish and the Palestinian conflicts. Um, give me a second here. Here's our friend Mandela again. Oh, going back to, I'm now turning around, I'm gonna head back to the gate uh, that is separating the Catholic from the Protestant side. There's sort of a very aggressive looking man. I'm going to be very sensitive. Yes, he's uh, one of the black taxi drivers, who is the classic uh, taxi company that gives the troubles tourism. Oh, there's a whole line of them. Okay, here we go. A whole line of the troubles tours. Looks, sounds like they're getting back in. As I hurry on back, I scuttle on back to the other side of the wall. We'll be crossing into the no man's land again. And uh, a very interesting part of the whole shebang is that they do indeed close the gates at night. And not just one of them, they close all the gates, as far as I am aware. So if you are stuck on the wrong side of town, you will remain stuck on the wrong side of town. Uh, that is one of the parts that really surprised me the most is that the wall is an active wall. It's an active separation. Um, they close the gates every night to keep the riffraff from crossing over. And as you'll hear in my conversation that I had with Johnny, there's been lots of attempts, attempts to sort of de-escalate, take down the wall, uh, soften the borders, these types of things. But it is always uh, immediately met with a lot of resistance from normal people, normal citizens. The wall continues to give them uh, sort of a peace of mind at night uh, that makes them feel safe, even though as far as daily violence or anything like that is concerned, is has sort of entered a new era. The idea of taking down the wall that was erected uh, to keep the two sides separate makes people very uncomfortable. Uh, especially there are groups and people who continue to work for peace in the region, uh, doing this through education. Oh, there's a vape on the ground. Uh, 
education uh, and art and community building and things like this, uh, it is not easy. They've, they've, the idea of taking down the wall is almost entirely abandoned. Instead, they work towards softening the wall, which includes putting up pieces of art, maybe changing the materials. So instead of a brick wall, you put maybe a fence or a gate. Um, but it is a, an extraordinarily slow process uh, going on decades now. And um, that's about it for this part of the wall. I will come back at you if there is something that needs to be commented on. Um, but I will say the atmosphere, very interesting atmosphere, very charged. Oh, I suppose I should take some pictures for y'all. I'll go back, I'll take some pictures. Uh, but very charged. It's, it is not presented as history. It is not necessarily a memorial to a time gone by. It is uh, very present, which is sort of an unusual feeling for an American to have signs of present danger or a, a, you know, a construct, a constructed object as a sign. Hold on as a sign and a reminder to a current and ongoing threat in your area. Okay, that's that then, folks. If I find anything else that needs to be said or shown, I will go ahead and get at you. But I think it's about time we talk to an Irish person about what's going on here. Um, I think, of course, in the Israeli-Gaza conflict, there is, walls are a big part of that as well, a big active part of what's going on on a daily basis. Um, again, something we don't really have a whole lot of uh, contact with in the U.S., we have our own wall talk about the southern border, but um, I don't know if I feel a particular fraternity as far as walls go, as with the Northern Irish. Okay, I'll get back to you, see if something happens. Well, nice job there, Basil, and uh, I'm glad you made it home safe. But, uh, man, I could smell the gasoline from the cars just <laughs> whizzing by. It sounded, in my mind's eye, you were, there were cars brushing up against you. you your shirt was flying in the air. It was, I had a lot of visuals going on in my head. Oh, but that's, yeah. That's no, a, I mean, that's, that's the very interesting thing about Belfast is in the U.S., you know, there would be a visitor center and, uh, 
uh, a big lawn and some picnic tables for when you go hang out at the monument that is the peace wall but it is it is an active peace wall there are yeah trash trucks and uh, loud noises it's a you know it's a sidewalk that people use to get to work which is walking right past the thing that uh, signifies uh, such a such a long history of conflict in the area it is it is not a monument it is an active working peace wall even today yeah and it got me thinking especially when you were trying to get it you started getting a little hush hush you know you can have maybe yes. some people around that might hear me talking wrong and stuff and uh wow you know that's <laughs> If that's what it's like on the ground, then we have no hope on the internet if things continue yeah. the way they're going. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I, I just I want to say two things. One of them is, yeah, I mean the the sort of ghosts of the conflict are still very active. There are still very passionate people on both sides. In fact, it was only an Back in 2021, you know, there was still some sectarian violence. There's a bus bombing uh, back in 2021. It is it is very real, and you do not want to play. You don't want to play around uh, or joke around with it too much with people yeah. that you don't know. Well, I was <laughs> I was warned very seriously uh, to be careful and sensitive as to who can hear me say what. Well, I, I was going to say, I, I didn't know when I was going to bring this up, but this whole episode, putting it together and looking into this conflict, it finally clicked for me. I had a couple Irish friends in college. One of them was a Catholic, Sean Carter. The other one was a Protestant, John O'Grady. And one of them would always invite us over for some hookah and drinks. This is back in college. This is a long time ago <laughs> for me. And it was supposed to be a nice, peaceful evening, a weekend college students, you know, hanging out, get together. But every single time Sean Carter and John O'Grady would get into a debate, some kind of theological debate or <laughs> sometimes even a debate about this issue. And I wasn't aware of it to the extent I am now. So I was always like, oh, here they go again. But yeah, I mean, they would get so passionate about their, their stance and they, you know, they were friends and teammates and stuff, but uh, it did come to blows a couple times. So uh, I have seen wow. firsthand the effects, the emotional, deep-rooted emotional effects of this conflict yeah. in my college uh, years back in the early 2000s. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's very interesting. And as we always have to remember, it's principalities and powers that are ruling over this earth. And uh, the sort of spiritual ancestry of these conflicts, even if peace is found— uh, these the sort of spiritual uh, ancestry of these conflicts will live on in, in further generations in a way that makes no sense outside of a supernatural worldview. Yeah, hundred percent. So you were able to sit down with Johnny. Yeah. So Johnny, a very cool guy, very interesting fellow, very uh, smart, very engaged with his community. I went to his. I don't know what to call it, an artist studio or something like that, a sort of abandoned uh, office building. 
And in this building, you know, it was, well, just like any office building. It was room upon room upon room. There's a bathroom on every floor. There was a small break room uh, with a sink and with a refrigerator. And this has been turned into a sort of collective, an artist collective. And you may think, oh, these hippy-dippy artists always living in abandoned buildings and... Uh, I don't know, uh, 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 selling paint splatters for change on the street. <laughs> but actually, this artist collective has played a very important role in the sort of culture of peace uh, that has been very intentionally and very laboriously uh, built by uh, Northern Irish and Irish who... Uh, Catholics and Protestants, everybody who is trying their best to heal the wounds. For this interview, I'm sitting in a small, formerly office. It was probably uh, 20 feet by 25 feet, scattered around the floor. And on easels and in stacks all around me are paintings that Johnny's working on. He tells me about his new art style that he's trying out with ink, different colors of ink, and then bleach poured on the ink, and then more ink on the bleach, uh, which is really a very engaging style. But there's probably about 30 or 40 paintings on the ground that are actively drying. Uh, the smell of bleach and the smell of ink uh, are noticeable, very noticeable, especially uh, as I sit there. I have a mini recorder set out in front of Johnny, and I have my iPhone in my hand. Uh, and he's very gracious, very gracious and uh, sitting down and talking with me and exploring this parallel between the two conflicts uh, and also giving me a little bit of history about what the process of building a culture of peace in Belfast, not just finding political peace, uh, but trying to build a culture of peace within the hearts and the minds and the spirits of the people who live there. Uh, why don't we start with who you are and like what, where we are? <laughs> what that is? We're in my studio, which is chaos, and there's lots of inky drawings and paintings scattered on the floor. And um, my name is Johnny McEwen. I'm I'm an artist, um, and this studio is a part of a studio group called Volt Artist Studios. Yeah. And um, we started five years ago with there was 18 of us. And it was supposed to be just for a temporary space that was in an, an old bank that was misused, was lying empty. And we inhabited the space for a year. And by the end of, we ended up being stayed there for two years. And by the end of those two years, we started to become community. Mm. So we kind of decided to look for somewhere together. Mm. And we found this amazing theater, school, science block thing that had been yeah, just lying old, empty. And yeah, that, was, that, was, that became the vault. Um, and we went from 18 up to 80 artists and then up to 120 artists. 
And they, they let you use the building specifically for this purpose? Or? So basically it was in, the building was destined to be social housing, mm. but they couldn't, they hadn't got planning permission, it wasn't happening yet. Mm. And meanwhile, it was starting to be inhabited by pigeons and, and feral kids. <laughs> so, and fires were starting to get lit. So it was like, so us being there did two things. It meant that because we had formed ourselves as a charity that stage, then we didn't have to pay rates. They didn't have to pay rates. Yeah. So the cost then, and then we were looking after the building, so and, and improving the building, and also improving the area and how people felt about moving there. So it was mm. quite a well-done area, yeah. and then we brought it to life, and so it's a really success story. And then eventually, our time there came to an end because they are starting to build now, and mm. um, so we tried to find new spaces and we couldn't find one space that would cope for everybody so we're split now between two spaces yeah um one shackle road in um, shackle mission building an old church building has a very nice churchy feel to it and then this is a soulless office space in <laughs> that we're hoping to kind of impose our creativity on. yeah bring some soul to so the we're space, right in the city center now, yeah. Belfast. yeah i mean you're right next to victorian square which is like the the commercial yeah. heartbeat of yeah. downtown Belfast. Yeah. At the edge of the cathedral quarter where the cultural stuff and the circus schools just around the corner and the oh yeah, music centre. That's kind of so there's a lot of kind of culture stuff happening that we can now yeah, invite people. Well, to I think it. that's like one of the things that at least a lot of Americans don't know about Belfast is that it's there's like a lot of actual culture going on yeah. here. So when we think of Europe, it's like Paris or yeah. Venice or something, but Belfast has like a vibrant modern culture sort of. Yeah, and a lot of it is kind of grassrootsy, kind of people doing their own thing rather than it's, it's severely underfunded. But I think that actually makes people have to do something. So fault doesn't get any funding. We we do this ourselves yeah but it's interesting so i kind of um one of the things i do is i still uh we have a background in working from peace building reconciliation we'll call them various things over the years and kind of applied creativity within that yeah possible so, i would take a, a group every year still a legacy thing of a group of students from america who come over uh spring break time and and the first it was a couple of years where i took them to the peace walls and it was a miserable day and it was just so depressing and then we went somewhere beautiful to stay up the north coast and the two stories just didn't match so mm-hmm. what i've started doing is to is to bring them to the vault or take them on a street or walking tour so you see the cultural vibrancy and try and make sense of so there's this cultural vibrancy and there's this conflict that's superimposed upon that and yeah exists alongside that and that's a more interesting, interesting story Oh, it, totally. I mean, I, I think there's another thing. First of all, a lot of people listening to this won't, I mean, they'll know about the travels mainly because I've brought up the travels several times, mainly because you've talked to me about the travels. But like the peace wall, the wall that separated the Protestant from the Catholic areas of town, still standing. The gates still close at night. Yeah. But the wall is sort of covered in an attempt to. Uh, well, I think it's. Yeah. Once it went up, we have a history of of putting political stuff on walls mm-hmm. uh, and also of territory marking with walls mm. and so, so what was on a dividing wall i think it's i think initially it was just kind of paramilitary graffiti so from either pro ira or pro uvf or whatever whatever side that you would be supporting yeah so it would be either um and then there was some peacenik type attempts that going i remember seven years enough don't make an eight mm. 
you know, and then eighties, and I don't make it nine, and nine, and then eventually twelve, they stopped. And we ended up having thirty years of conflict, but we euphemistically call the troubles. Yeah. Um, oh, is that euphemist? Oh, the troubles is yeah. kind of like oh yeah, yeah, got it, got it, yeah. Having a bit of trouble, yeah. <laughs> and also we couldn't, yeah. Whether whether or not it was a war mm-hmm. is is a kind of contentious thing itself because if it's a war, then there's prisoners of war. We have special status, so that's kind of what some of the IRA uh, combatants who were in jail were then went on hunger strike to try and get that political status to get recognised as soldiers in a war. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and then there were hunger strikes and people died, and then it was that was the, the height of the troubles. I would say was whenever um, yeah um, people were going hunger strike and dying and then the funerals were happening the funerals then were attacked by the loyalists and then there was more violence and then the yeah it's kind of it was scary days what was the time period you're talking you're specifically referring to so that was um i think mid 90s mid 90s yeah i mean i think that's another thing a lot of people don't realize that it's so recent yeah so recent so the good Friday agreement which was the the I guess the beginning, if not the end of the peace process. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff led to the agreement, which was then a referendum north and south, um, and it was sold as there you know, that's peace, and and it got voted for. Um, but anybody else who worked in peace building knew that kind of that was peace was a long way away. Yeah, you know, and kind of and with that, there's still been quite a lot of. Uh, Attacks and, and kind of not on very in global terms, the Northern conflict is quite small. It kind of reads as just like organized crime almost. I think it's, it's shifted a lot of people that were involved in fighting for cause are now involved in other types of criminality. Mm, yeah. So that's, you know, but, but what it meant was that Belfast was a really, really safe place because any of the criminality was focused and, and yeah, controlled. Right. So you know, and if if someone burgled a house, then they, the local paramilitary would have some graffiti saying "housebreakers beware," mm. and they would probably get the stuff back. Interesting, and, and then and then deal with the the people in kind of very violent way. So speaking of art and speaking of the peace wall, the peace wall has art all the way down it. Some of it is sort of like street graffiti. Some of it, some uh, more, uh, I don't know, cohesive messaging in the form of murals. Mm -hmm. And I think what surprised a lot of people, surprised me, was that the Peace Wall in several occasions is sort of pronouncing solidarity with Palestine. Yeah. There's one particular part of the wall uh, that's called the International Wall. It's on the the Nationalist Republican slash Catholic side. Mm-hmm. And so they would have always historically kind of um as part of the trying to understand their own thing and showing empathy and solidarity with other conflicts around the world where there's a someone under siege or kind of like there's loads of different conflicts where you go, oh yeah, if that was here, we'd be thick sides. Yeah. So you'll see stuff around kind of Nelson Mandela there, and mm. you know, you'll see um, stuff around Cuba and stuff around El Salvador and kind of Tambles Tigers and Sri Lanka, and there's kind of like there's anywhere there's conflict, there'll be 
they'll feel sort of, sort of I was in the Basque region and there again there's going yes if they find you're from Belfast oh welcome welcome oh really yeah so there's, there is a kind of like a and historically as well there's been some kind of you know supply of weapons and, and training of, of, of paramilitaries by in in some of those areas yeah all the all the examples that you mentioned not only are they sort of conflict zones but they're sort of these long drawn out i mean it's almost like the people inhabiting the areas have sort of made it the lifestyle or it's forced upon them it's like a lifestyle conflict that goes on for generations yeah um I don't know about all the matchups, but I, I think there's also kind of like a, a big player. So either America or Britain have, mm-hmm. have been historically involved, either colonially or or militarily needing something in that area, mm-hmm. and have been a bigger part of the global politics, and have therefore set one community against the other mm-hmm. in in many cases yeah. that, that didn't exist before. So they kind of, yeah, and then they go, we're saying that yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's these interesting. These guys are the good guys, and these guys are the we score these guys against this. Yeah. yeah. So, so that happened in which might be Kosovo and Serbia. Specifically poignant when it comes to Palestine, because from what I understand, Great Britain, like the same process and same, I don't know, legal stuff, like the 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 process of trying to. I don't know if annex is the right word, but what they're doing with Northern Ireland is very similar yeah. to what they did in the early the 20th century, like 1917 Belfort Declaration for Israel. Yeah, I mean, and Northern Ireland exists because a very careful line was drawn that was drawn in order to ensure that there'd be a, a unionist Protestant majority forever. Mm. And then last year was the first year whenever the voting when the voting is finished, it turns out there's more people who want to unite Ireland than there are people who want to remain British for oh. the first time since Northern Ireland's existence. That's a big deal. So in 2022 mean, was the so, first year. Yeah, so so it's it's always been kind of getting to that. It was a, a date that kind of someone the Unionist British side would have would have dreaded happening, and it's happened sooner than some people thought. Partly because more national Catholics have stayed and more Protestants have left, mm. you know, as well as kind of it, it other makes, factors. It makes me wonder in both the Palestinian and the Northern Ireland situation, like what Great Britain or, I don't know, I know these terms like Great Britain or England or the crown or whatever have specific meanings. I'm American, so it all means the same. We're using them interchangeably. Yeah. Uh, so the crown, I'm not sure historically why the crown with the uh, would even do what they did with the exception of causing intentional conflict just allows them to keep a foot in the door on the island and so up until 1916 britain ran ireland as a colony mm. or tried to mm-hmm. and he ran it with the same kind of military force that they used in india mm. and the same disregard for the local population so there's that kind of there's that kind of culture of this is how you control a country. Whenever the it looked like the unrest, and it was you know, partly the French Revolution, then the Irish Revolution was kind of the Irish flag is inspired, but was gifted from the French mm. Revolutionary. So it's kind of like there's this whole sense of change, but there was also the First World War, and Britain not controlling Ireland means it got very weak flank for a, a very good base for an attack mm. and also if 
the new Ireland was going to be neutral, which looked very like the case, and that was going that they were scared as well. Mm. So that's why it's like a national security. So that's concern. why, but but it also was set up with as so that but it was set up as a kind of that's what the Dublin as capital mm-hmm. was a way to suck all everything out of Ireland. Again, so Dublin looks quite. English in a sense, the old Georgian houses and, and kind of has that feeling because there's an expression beyond the pale, I don't know if you know this expression, and beyond the pale, the pale was an area outside Dublin quite, and outside that was unsafe to go. Oh. That was the, the wilds of, of Ireland where, where the Irish savages and drunkards and all fighting the barbarians. Yeah, yeah. And that was kind of the myth of that. So whenever they kind of lost that, I'm not, I'm not, I don't think I was going to try and explain the whole of Northern Ireland. Yeah, but it's very but the, the north, valuable. Why the North is different was the North had historically been more loyal to Britain. has really close links to Scotland. It's only you know, less than 30 miles Scotland. So a lot of people travelling back and forth. The language of the North, the accents, and the, quite Scottish as well. And so in the 1600s, it was kind of like... Uh, Presbyterians in particular who were causing stress to the, the then king in order to get them out of his hair were, were sent over and they were given land which obviously belonged to somebody before they were given and so all the land and the wealth lay with the Protestant mm. so here you have the colonial thing setting up what was going to be an inevitable conflict already because you're giving power to these people who took it from somebody else. Yeah. And, there's, and also the and you're building into your systems the that inequality. Mm-hmm. So even then, so back to the beginning of the troubles, fast forward to the 1970s. So the civil rights march in America were inspiring civil rights protests here because the and one thing to look for was one man, one vote. Mm. It seems like a really obvious thing now. Yeah. I haven't got the one woman, one vote yet. <laughs> but one man, one vote. Uh, because if you own a property, you had a vote. If you own seven properties, you had seven votes. Really? All the way into the 70s? Yeah. yeah. 1970s, so, it was still so, landowners had the vote. Yeah. Well, no, oh. no, no, no. I'm saying it was, it, was, it was shaped in terms of they had more votes. Right, okay. So everybody had, had a vote, but some people had extra votes. Okay. And also then, let's not build houses for the Catholic population, because then... They have more votes, mm. so there was pressure. So people were combined into issue, and that then led to, to families being split up and put into care, and you know, which led then to angry young men who were ready for a fight yeah. whenever it came. Yeah, they had nothing to lose. So, and they, a lot of people said, "Fight came to us." You know? Yeah. So yeah, so it was. It wasn't very surprising when when it kicked off. Yeah, I find it interesting that. Uh, in both the Northern Irish Irish situation and the Palestinian situation, the religious separation, you know, you've got Catholics versus Protestants down there, you've got Jews versus Muslims, but it's so, in, in sort of the broader context, the religious aspect of it is, is almost it's, secondary. It's, it's never been by theology. It's, yeah. it's shorthand for describing what's basically an ethnic frontier or, yeah. or a cultural clash yeah. know, and a kind of sense of identity. It's quite identity, I think. Because that's one thing that's lost in the Middle East is yeah. a lot of people are, and even on the news, like it's yeah. it's pushed like, oh, this is a Jew and Muslim thing. 
This yeah. is theological differences. This that's what it is, and people go deep into it, and they go back to Abraham and, yeah. and go through the whole story, and that's why they're yeah. fighting. And the people look back in history to try and find a map that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of the there's a idea that kind of we you know, here Catholics and Protestants were living much more together before the troubles, and now we become more separated. Mm. And in Palestine, it was Palestinian Christians and Jews and Muslims living together, or maybe you know close to each other at least. Yeah, yeah. and that's kind of been put under pressure by this kind of um, the economic system. Um, yeah. system that's kind of and by inequalities of wealth and resources and. You know, who controls the resources and kind of that's part of it. I'm nervous to talk about Israel and Palestine because I don't really know very much about it. But I know there are lots of programs of commonality where I, when I worked more in peace building, there would be a lot of international conflict stuff with young people who would come from, from South Africa and from Israel and Palestine and would come from Northern Ireland. Yeah. I think the Northern Ireland conflict, I said, it's, it's quite, I don't want to minimise it, but it, in terms of other conflicts around the world, a number of people killed was over 3,000. Mm-hmm. And for the size of the population, that means everybody knew somebody. Mm-hmm. But it happened kind of quite slowly. Mm-hmm. And so it was ob- observable. And therefore, it was some people were able to study whoops, here's what happens in conflict. So this was, I think, the first conflict that actually had people going to universities and lecturing about conflict studies. And, and then we we came up with an idea for this peace process that kind of hasn't quite worked, but it's a lot better than it was. It seems to be sort of working. Yeah. But we we, we kind of fuzzed a few things. Yeah. With the with the two areas of Belfast, you, you have the Catholic area and the Protestant area, or whatever way you want to talk about that, with the wall going down the middle. And those gates close at night still. Yeah. The gates close. And it, as far as who lives on what side of the wall, hmm. is there enforcement there or is it just no, kind of... No, it's it's purely by choice, but driven by fear. Mm. We visited the, um, I guess, the most famous peace wall bits, but there's loads of really, really boring peace walls. <laughs> and there's loads of interfaces that aren't walls that are maybe just one street and there's maybe a bit of wasteland and then there's another street and you know, and people wouldn't go over there mm. or there's roads where kind of the Catholics walk on one side and the Protestants walk on the other mm. and they they do that naturally without yeah. thinking about it you know it's kind of so when there's a new housing being built they're going well let's make it a shared housing thing let's not make it a Catholic one or a Protestant uh, sure if it's in if it's in the middle of a Protestant area then uh, Catholic families won't feel safe yeah. to go to it. Yeah, they can call so, mix as much or as Or Protestants can. won't want to go too close into an area that's, that's not already a bit mixed or known for being a bit mm. mixed. So where it's built is important because people want to feel safe. And then legally you can't go, okay, we're naming 50 Catholics and 50 Protestants mm. because that's that's actually discriminating. Yeah. So you have to take the people who need the housing the most. So we get a random mix, which should theoretically be mixed. What we've tried to do historically is make those neutral spaces where there's no flags, nobody has an Irish flag, nobody puts a British flag up. Mm. But then nearly always something inevitably happens. There's tension close by in maybe a Protestant area 
and they'll put up lots of flags in the area and those flags will creep into this new shared housing thing. And then it becomes thought of or people who then don't support those flags feel less comfortable there. And then maybe, uh, or maybe somebody who's there has has power in the community, mm. maybe from their history. So I'm talking in the community. So maybe someone has a, a paramilitary past yeah. and would still have a, kind of their voice would be listened to more in the community. Yeah. And they would go, my niece needs a house. Uh, right. And so my niece needs a house. I'll have a word with that person and they'll maybe want to move out. Mm. And then my niece can move in. Oh, so that's so cool. that's one thing. There's yeah. loads of different processes. Some quite natural, all driven by fear. Some quite natural, but also kind of even so. So this is all happening within the working class areas we're going to talk about. But it's more mixed as a middle class area because there's less tension there because it's kind of like oh, there's something going on about class that's yeah. kind of equally divisive here, right? But I'm happy to go in and buff us out my piece of work to work and all friends all But I've always chosen to live in a Protestant area. Uh, a Protestant, mm-hmm. I live in East Belfast, it's the majority of Protestants. Right. You know, I don't. And there are, I have, I can think of one friend who deliberately went and lived in a Catholic nationalist area. And as, as, a, as, a, as a prophetic gesture. Right, yeah. And are they still living there? Yeah. Okay, good. And, and I have a lot of friends who kind of like, although they came, grew up in the Protestant kind of evangelical charismatic tradition even, they've, they're sending their kids to a Catholic school. So the education system is divided as well. It's another old story. Oh, wow. So, um, I didn't even know that. So yeah, there's very few um, integrated schools, which are Catholics and Protestants together. They're mostly, there's the... Catholic maintained schools which are run by the church that anyone who's a good Catholic will be encouraged to send their kids to and they're also really good schools yeah so because they're really good teachers um, and then what's left is are the state schools who are then by default Protestant interesting okay so the Catholic schools are run I mean they must be connected to the Vatican. I mean, are they? No, I think it's, 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 it's and now theoretically, mm-hmm. theoretically, and in the last twenty years, it's been there's the same curriculum has been taught. Okay. The but the teachers are trained separately. The Catholic. So if you if you come or born here, you'll go to. I went to a Protestant primary school. I went to uh, a secondary school, kind of the eleven to seventeen thing. I had one Catholic in my class. Hmm. You know, that's kind of when he was, there was no one that was Catholic and was kind of like, he was interesting because of that. Right. Um, but then if I wanted to be a teacher, I would go to the Protestant Teaching College and then I would go teach in the Protestant school. So, so there's like, yeah. It's a weird kind of roundabout It's just, it's, just there, it's possible to kind of, the first time people actually mix is probably university. Uh-huh. If you go to university, really, but if, go you, if, all you, the way. if or in your workplace, but if you if you're working locally in your Protestant area or Catholic area, if you go and work in the local shop, you'll be working in the Catholic shop with the Catholic people, right. serving Catholic vegetables. Catholic vegetables, you know, it's just, it's a it's a it's a default, isn't it? Every so this, I'm going to get to the past here mm. and everything. Everything comes down to that big single question so 
whenever there's been the situation in the Middle East has been at times very tense and often used for a long time. But one of the times of tension then, people from the Nationalist Catholic you know, put up in solidarity Palestinian flags as is going on at the moment. Yeah. And across the other side of the wall, they, without thinking it through or knowing very much probably about the the complicated geopolitical situation, put up an Israeli flag. Yeah. Mostly to piss off the Catholics. <laughs> you know, if you're going to support that, we're, we're on the outside. So I think that's where there is a kind of few other things going. There's like the lost tribe of Israel might actually be the Presbyterians. There's some Protestants who yeah. kind of like who see themselves as that lineage and, and the people are going to heaven or that missing tribe. You know, something like that's happening. Yeah. There's also then on the loyalist side who, who really like being British, they have links to then some very uh, some right-wing British groups who who came over to Belfast and went and they would be quite right-wing obviously mm-hmm. um, but also not a big fan of Jewish people mm-hmm. and they came over to their friends in Belfast and went what are you doing with the Israeli flag? Uh, yeah. And they, for them it was an anathema yeah. and, and I imagine uh, the conversation where they go going we should annoy them, so that's that's yeah, good reason. Really, just sort of like a, it's in, I mean, it's almost like a mirror because on one hand you've got Israel sort of mm-hmm. existing and continuing to exist because of the the gifts of the West, basically, and the Protestant side of Northern Ireland sort of identifying with the crown, yeah. if that's the most specific way to say it. I don't know. Yeah. yeah you, Want to be British, yeah, yeah. British want to be British, right? Um, so the situation kind of mirrors itself. You mentioned earlier the the year nineteen sixteen, which I find surprisingly close to the year nineteen seventeen, which was the Belfort Proclamation, the first sort of document stating intentions to create a state of Israel. Mm-hmm. What happened in nineteen sixteen? Was that when? So that was the the Easter Rising. That's the the kind of um, is that when out they... of Dublin when they declared Ireland as as, as existing. So and they did not, it this... not, and within it didn't. I, I'm not a historian, so oh, yeah, I don't sure. want to the the thing. But then, kind of, so yeah, and then shortly after that, they realised that Northern Ireland would not be part of that, and so 1921, Northern Ireland begins. Yeah. So pretty much the split of the yeah. island of Ireland and the split of at least the intention to split the, mm-hmm. the section in the Middle East were pretty much happening at the exact same time. Yeah, and I think it's kind of the coming out of World War One and that kind of. And, yeah, I guess a lot of and, things were split and, uh, up at that point. Yeah, and the fear and awareness of what War of War Two might become. It was also an opportunity for the winners of World War One to shape all of geopolitics in their favor you know the war had just been won they just had the opportunity and the authority and the political will and everything to sort of reshape borderlines almost across the entire world but definitely europe and uh the middle east and africa too i think at the same time yeah what an interesting someone with a couple of people in a room with a ruler yeah straight line through whatever they did a great job with their ruler making like the most conflict plus possible 
orders. I'm just thinking that the, the first time I can remember whenever I was waiting for it to fall down either, it's as a Catholic or both thing. And there was support on both sides was Ukraine. Mm. So you see Ukraine flags on both sides. And that's never happened before. You're talking about re in yeah, recent times? Yeah. And that's very interesting. And, and it's kind of uh, remains that. I think huh. there's kind of... Do you think so it's, it's an anti-Russia thing? Do you think it's a legitimate pro-Ukraine? Or do you think it's a sort of social um, product of the internet and the message? I have no, I have no idea. I think... But it was—it certainly was remarkable because I was waiting for something Russia flags to, to go up. Yes, yeah, yeah. It, it wouldn't. It wouldn't have surprised me. Yeah, because that's what—that's really, and it wouldn't have been about Ukraine or Russia. It would be—it's about us, and it's about how, how we make everything about us. You know, yeah, it's not, it's not. It's some of it comes from empathy, and you know, and also. Um, like when the new communities, so people that come here from other countries, for a long time nobody came here because there was a war on, more or less, and there was why would you escape violence to come somewhere where there was violence? Yeah. So we had very few people of color, very few different religions, so apart from Catholic Protestant. Um, um so we genuinely thought we weren't racist. <laughs> <laughs> because nobody nobody felt threatened by the few people who were here. Right. And and now we've discovered where really, really is, um, in a sense, no surprise really to anybody. But it's it was, it was we believed the myth for a little while. But what's interesting is if somebody comes from a country in, in Africa, or whatever, and they move into a Protestant area, they'll kind of be counted as Protestants hmm. or kind of become as Catholics. And if they, I did some work with some of the new communities, so kind of was this. Anecdotal, but from personal experience. And so, if there's any racist attack, they would be, do you want to move to the other area? Mm. And they would, no, don't, I don't want to go to the area. <laughs> and they take, take on the, the fears right. of the community. But there was, and there was another dynamic where there was some racist events and attacks that were increasing and making the news, and they were happening in Protestant loyalist areas. Yeah. So, like the flag thing, like, well, if they're going to be racist, we'll be no racist at all. <laughs> so there was like a multicultural blooming uh, in order to... Just so like a, it's positive silver lining thing to our sectarianism yeah. was that... Driven by conflict. Driven by conflict. Yeah. Was, let's, let's make them look bad by being really welcome. Huh. That is so interesting. You know, and I think one thing that really surprises people still today is the continued is paramilitary activity. You showed me a, a video yesterday of a... I'm going to get all the sides wrong, but... It was a, a loyalist a paramilitary. It was a taxi driver who was working, gathering a drug debt with a gun while he was taxiing. Yeah. And, but there's also kind of like yesterday on the news, there was a, um, a figure that an academic was giving a report in Parliament who said that in the last, there's more uh, paramilitaries now than there were 30 years ago. In the world? Or no, in, in Northern Ireland. In Northern Ireland. So part of the peace dividend since, since our peace process, the number of paramilitaries has increased, even though 
they're mostly on ceasefire <laughs> because 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 his bits moved to being and drug gangs controlling yeah. communities through fear. You know, is is all of that happening? Yeah, they're it's... not they're not doing as much violence. They're not as much of a threat. And uh, on both sides, at the extreme sides of those, there are people who want to return to violence. And people who kind of think that it was wrong to give in before we got United Ireland, and that people over here are going, we're losing everything. Mm. If we don't stand and fight now, there'll be United Ireland, and will, nor Northern Ireland will not exist. Yeah. And that's, that's worth fighting for. Right. You know, so there is people, are people who, smallish numbers, but you can see how those things might develop momentum if they're not to the concept of walls for a second of course there's lots of questions about what exactly happened between gaza and israel and their walls uh their walls are sort of memorialized up here on your walls but uh it, instead of you know like the wall that uh came down in germany your guys's walls seem to be getting bigger. They keep getting taller. Yeah. Um, so I think the, I've, I remember working with a women's group who kind of like, they actually met on a church that straddles the peace line. So they work, someone comes from the Catholic side, someone comes from the Rothschild and they meet inside this church. Mm. Um, they go through this wee green gate to get to and And, and they have, the thing they have most in common is living beside this wall and it overshadows literally all of their lives. And we ask kind of going, what do you want to do with the wall? And they go, we, we would like it down, but not yet, not yet, not now. We, it makes us feel safe. Mm. And so I think the difference is some, some walls are imposed. These are, these are their, um, they went up initially as barricades of protection. Initially they were, mattresses and planks of wood and built overnight and guarded by local guys who stood there to prevent people coming in and attacking them. Huh. You know, so and then they became permanent and then they became bricks and then they became concrete and then became if it's gonna work it needs to be taller. Yeah. You know? But uh, but uh, there is a process, a parallel process of trying to imagine a world where they don't are needed. And so there's a softening of them so sometimes that's by doing our project on them sometimes it's kind of we don't maybe we don't need the barbed wire on the top or maybe they can come down a tiny bit maybe drop by a foot or maybe each of your wall becomes a fence you can see through mm. so you can see the people living their lives over there you know there's a possibility that you can't you know it starts um, a good place to start at yeah, least. Yeah. yeah and there's kind of there's been some art projects that go on what if we just make them like plexiglass you can see through what if they're just you know and there's other then things going things that are gates that are closed maybe they don't get closed anymore or yeah. they only get closed less or or it's a you know so there's different kind of ways of going how do you how do you make that happen but also any for if you're in that community and you're trying to control a community then the the walls serve a purpose yeah so they're kind of and yeah, there's a very a clear sense of protection as well. Mm. You know, there's kind of if you're and we this history of walls here is we have cities with walls that are kind of like um Korean 
used to have, used to be a wall garrison city. It's a town up in the north coast, quite a nice market town now. And um, I was unaware for recently. It had a wall and it had a bell. And when the bell rang at night, all the Catholics had to leave the city. Really? <laughs> so it was kind of like come in and work, but they're. That's. That's, I mean, that's a pretty... So, we, you know, it's, it's in our DNA. Yeah. That, that kind of, and that's kind of like in the, the dairy, was in the walls of dairy, and the story there of kind of, um, you know, Protestants inside, destroyed by a Catholic army, and then and somebody offering to surrender, and his name is Lundy. Now, that's a, to call somebody a Lundy, it's just a complete traitor of the lowest thing. <laughs> and every year there's a big statue of our big effigy of Lundy that's set on fire. <laughs> it's just, it's like, and they watch around the walls. So that happens every year in London, I should say. Yeah, also it's called London. Classical Derry. Yeah, so much. I mean, that's. Uh, so, do they still do the bell thing in the Catholics? No, no, no. no, no. Okay. Okay. I, but, but I was going to say, that's kind of the closest thing to what we see in Palestine and Israel is uh, best case scenario, Gazans are given work permits, but they have to go back every yeah. night back there. Yeah. Um, do you know, you don't happen to know the timing when they stop doing that. Is that sort of an No, I think, I think I've think i only just learned that. I think it's a, it's a very historical. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it could be. Um, well, that's very interesting. I mean, it's it, not to give away the secrets here, but we are not trying to jump into the Israel Gazan thing that is not our intention it just so happens that there's other places in at least similar situations yeah. or dealing with and, I, and I kind of I have ended up you know doing some training stuff around with people around conflict and conflict is the same everywhere whether it's a couple of kids fighting in the playground or whether it's me and my wife Mm-hmm. or whether it's you kind of family stuff the kind of every conflict follows a pattern you know and kind of if I fall out with you you know it takes energy to be in, in that conflict so eventually you go let's do something let's have a coffee and we'll go and that's and that could be you know I, I reckon probably a couple hours <laughs> but, but here we did 30 years yeah you know and kind of and people go these patterns we exist and we did some work over in in Croatia with Bosnian and Serbian youth workers mm. and we did the same stuff, same storytelling and kind of and how um how these conflicts tend to kind of loop and every thirty years the stories are held and, and even though we're living together we still remember what happened. Mm. And so when it kicks off we know we instinctively know it because we've heard the stories of of by the other. Well, there you go. Thank you, Johnny, for sitting down with Basil. And thank you to the listener who got through that. I I had to really focus. I mean, this was an an exercise in concentration, not just the audio quality, but the accent as well. But I think (laughs) once you get the hang of it, I think you can uh, figure out what Johnny was saying. So uh, very deep, very profound. It's it's very interesting. It's interesting. I mean, it's one thing to hear the story from me screaming it in the beginning of this episode, but it's another thing to hear it in the words of somebody who lived through it. You know, people, yeah. even even uh, sort of uh, elder millennials in the city lived through some fairly significant 
bouts of violence in the city. And to hear the story told uh, from someone who lived through it is is uh, really a, a privilege. Um, and, you know, I would be interested in, you know, if there was some sort of boots on the ground thing I could safely or at least semi-safely do <laughs> to uh, explore more specifically the Palestinian-Israel conflict, uh, I would take that opportunity. But until uh, we can find a safe way for me to do that, uh, I thought that this was kind of the next best thing. I yeah. think it's a uh, not only do I think uh, Americans, but just us. I mean, the the listeners of this show. I think it's valuable for us to think about the world in this way and to hear it from the people who experience it. That's very valuable. Um, and and we'll take what we can get until until uh, another. Uh, uh, opportunity presents itself. And so I hope you enjoyed it, folks. Uh, I had, I, I love doing this. I think this type of boots on the ground stuff brings some value to this show that you can't necessarily get uh, in any other way besides somebody going somewhere and doing it. Uh, we will improve uh, my production strategies while I'm out in the field, but I really want to thank um, the producers, the producers of the Canary Cry averse. It's very meaningful people listening to the show, getting value from the show and putting value back in uh, whether it's with their time, their talent or their treasure people uh really this is a podcast that's produced by people all over the world and so i think it's only fair that we try to get stories uh from all over the world and and look at the world through the perspectives of uh people uh, in other countries and in america it's so easily we so easily build a world view uh and you know conspiracy theories and uh and geopolitical um opinions from the american perspective uh but i i had a lot of fun doing this it wasn't necessarily easy uh but thank you to the producers who are making it happen yeah one of the things we do we, we thank producers on canary cry news talk for coming in with their treasure their talent or their time and specifically with the talent group we often talk about how their art, whether it's music or drawings or whatever it is, helps us build the culture behind the community. And I, I resonated with Johnny talking about creating that culture of peace through artwork and through the you know other things he was doing. I think we can get on board with that. And also, I think one of the most important points that Johnny made there in that conversation and the, the probably the biggest takeaway for me anyway, was that conflict is the same everywhere. You know, the, the yeah. context might be a little different. The names, the labels, the people might be a little different. But when it comes to the fundamentals of conflict, it's kind of the same everywhere. There are some patterns that emerge when you start looking at it like that. And uh, it's easy to point at a direct enemy or, you know, the Rothschilds as a perpetrator of this kind of thing. But our message has always been that we are in a spiritual war, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against the principalities and powers. And they are the ones that are really deceiving and controlling man. And, uh, you know, it also proves the biblical idea of a fallen state that we are 
in this sin nature. We're born into this sin nature, uh, thanks to Adam and Eve there. And these conflicts all just prove that. <laughs> it's, yeah. just, it's just interesting how, you know, everyone has ideas about how we can be better. Uh, but that doesn't happen unless everybody agrees that we are falling short of an ideal point or an ideal standard for ourselves. Yeah. And so right. uh, it's just a fascinating thing where these conflicts seem to prove the biblical worldview more than people realize. So yeah. hope you get something out of that, you know, out of these ideas being, uh, or at least us presenting it in a, in a different way than what you probably get in most podcasts, which are, you know, for, for good or for worse, uh, taking sides on these issues and, and really going in hard on some hermeneutics that yeah. aren't always agreeable, but yeah, you know, it happens. Nope. No matter what uh, your opinion about the conflict going on in the Middle East right now, and I want to recognize that listeners of this show probably have, uh, there's a greater chance that they have a more subtle and nuanced view yeah, yeah. Uh, of what's going on. And I hope that the way we presented this today uh, goes to sort of strengthen that nuanced and subtle uh, way of approaching the topic. It's so easy. Remember, the people who are sort of vehemently and passionately fighting the fight in the media and in their communities uh, or on the streets or outside the White House or wherever they are fighting their fight with righteous in indignation. For us, I think it's uh, it's always been a goal of ours to to try to look at things in a way uh, that those who control the narrative and those who have a vested interest in us taking sides don't realize that it doesn't matter uh, which team wins, which team loses, the league always wins. And even just fostering fostering this idea that we can look more broadly, we can uh, use subtlety and nuance to try to understand conflicts in the world for ourselves. Even if we never develop a cohesive political point, but just for our own souls and for our own peace and well-being, uh, we hope that this uh, presenting this stuff this way uh, goes to just help the individual uh, cope and understand what's really going on in the world. And again, that's only possible because of the producers of the show. Uh, so thank you very much. The, we're on the value for value model. You'll notice that there are no product placements. There's no advertising. Uh, we don't break into the episode uh, with some pre-recorded advertisement for an underwear company or something. And that's not just because of taste, but it is also because on a broad view, gaining your trust and attention, and then us turning around and literally, not even metaphorically, literally selling your trust and attention to corporations in order to uh, keep the show going is is distasteful 
in our opinion, and participating in that sort of corporate mind control culture is it goes against pretty much everything we stand for. And so instead, it's the value for value model. Not everybody is able to produce the show. We understand that. Uh, but the idea is if you get value out of what we do, you are invited to understand that the show can only continue when value gets put back in. And it's not just money. You can produce the show with your time, your talent, or your treasure. If you go to canarycry.support, that's a URL, canarycry.support, you can see lots of ways to produce the show with your finances. At the bottom of that page, you can also fill out your form if you want to volunteer your time to help out with the show. There are People all across the world uh, who volunteer their time, put value back into the show, help us with projects and tasks and, you know, whatever their skill is, they put that back into the show. And we call them producers because that's exactly what you guys are. When you put value into creating this show, you are a producer of the show. And if you're an artist or a musician, or anything, you can go to canarycry.art. That's a URL, canarycry.art. Uh, and you can upload your art to the show there. Just create something for us. Be a part of the culture of Canary Cry Radio and Canary Cry News Talk. Uh, upload that art there, and we'll be featuring it on uh, future episodes. Do you know what the lamb bag drum is? No. I was looking up what the most quintessential instrument for Ireland was, and uh -huh. I, I expected bagpipe or lute or something. But no, it's the lambeg drum. Huh. Yeah. A you want drum. Yeah, so this is a this is a little little bit of the lambeg drum. It's a it's a big drum. That Sounds straps, like a drum, all right. Straps to your chest, and you got a stick on either side, hitting it, and you walk down the street. It's like the early uh, marching band type of thing, but th but they're ginormous. It's a huge drum. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Have you heard of the Carnix? No. This is a really interesting. I don't know what this says about sort of the meta. Uh, uh, I don't know, internet culture right now. But there is clips going around of an old Celtic battle horn. It's an ancient Celtic battle horn. I sent you uh, a link there if you want to check it out, Cons. Maybe we can play it. Maybe we can end the show with this ancient Celtic battle horn. I don't know. Maybe that's too profound. But uh, yeah, it's this giant, very tall uh, horn, you hold it straight up in the air, uh -huh. and it's got the head of a horse oh. at the top of it. Oh. <laughs> and you, <laughs> you blow it's it. A, a, that's a Viking shofar. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it is. It's uh, and apparently the word on the street is that these these were the battle horns of the Celts, and uh, this was the the last noise that a Roman soldier would have heard before you know they're sitting at the campfire at night, and the Celts are preparing an ambush, <laughs> and before the Celts attacked, they would hear this sound. got different notes yeah it's got like harmonics going on it's got multiple voices going on Ooh, we got the deep one the brown noise So there's a car next. Yeah. As long as we're talking Irish instruments. So I guess this is the Celts. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. But (laughs) there you go. (laughs) We'll leave you on that, folks. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of Canary Cry Radio. We hope you tune in next time. But until then, think outside the cage. (laughs) 